I mean, we were just talking about the the inconvenience of making pesto, and furthermore, how pesto isn't really pesto without a mortar and pestle. <laughs> pestle, funny. Yeah, it's uh, pesto is one of those things that uh, now that I'm realizing that you can make it without basil. Like, so I just got a bunch of turnips. You can make it with a bunch of turnip greens, and turnip greens are hard to fit into food unless you're making a stew or like you're sauteing greens, but you can turn a bunch of this like huge voluminous mass that might not fit in your fridge into just a little jar of pesto. And it makes it super, super convenient. Right. So is there something about grinding up greens that, that, that fits? Okay. Like <laughs> greens, uh, leaves are super thin, right? They're a couple, couple cells thick. Uh, but they take up all this space, right? And you want to store them in a way that they don't break because then they break and they get all soggy and gross. So taking care of greens is just a pain in the ass. And if you can blend them up and keep them in this like delicious pesto state, oh, it makes it last. Yeah, just like pour a bunch of salt into it. Yeah, mm. salt, olive oil, mm, golden. <laughs> yeah, I just want to go on the record and say pesto is not good. But... I disagree, but that's okay. Yeah. I don't think you're a terrible person because you don't think pesto is good. <laughs> but I, I do want to go get back to one thing that you said earlier, which while we were off air, you were saying how you get these weekly shipments from, from local farmers. What's yeah, yeah. the, I mean, it seems very intentional. It's just, you want to support them and, uh, you know, go with the seasons and do, do things in a more sustainable way. Yeah. So uh, when I was doing my undergrad, I, I started researching into agriculture and food, just trying to understand it because that's what my thesis was based off of food and uh, locally sourced food, supporting organic agriculture and whatnot. And um, when I really got into it, I learned that pretty much the best way to be sustainable is to uh, think locally, right? And when you're thinking locally, you're thinking about your region specific, what you're getting there, what you can grow there, stuff that you can source, you know, a couple kilometers away, not from another state or another country. So if you start in uh, incorporating more of those foods, locally grown foods into your diet, it's way better for you, better for the earth too. You know, you're kind of moving with the seasons. Um, but one really great way to do that is with CSAs, which are community supported agriculture like programs. So you sign up with a farm, they deliver a package of food every week to you. And it's, it's really cool, but it challenges you because you have to learn how to use these different foods, right? Um, but because you're supporting that farmer in specific or that farm in specific, you don't have to get out of your way and go to a farmer's market and see, you know, like, depending on what's available, what you can buy, um, it takes that inconvenience out of it. Plus for farmers, setting up for a farmer's market is actually pretty inconvenient. They have to drive the entire way there, get there super early to set up and have everything ready to go by what, 8 a.m. Um, and then it's just super weather dependent. They might not sell anything and you don't know what you're gonna get. So CSA is just this like super convenient. Farmers can do it on their own time, keep the package stored away. You can go pick it up somewhere. They can deliver it to you. And um, there's, they lose or the, the actual process loses this, the issue of, uh, unreliability. You don't know if it rains on a farmer's market, you might not sell anything. So with a CSA, farmers are insured income. So you are supporting your local, uh, your local farmers, which is really good for the local economy. You're eating locally and it pushes your cooking skills, you know, to another level. Cause you, you, you get a bunch of turnips one week and you're like, well, what do I do with turnips? And then you figure out turnip pesto. Right. I yeah. guess it's interesting. So 
when, when I think of sustainability, right, there's like environmental sustainability, but then there's also sustainability of an activity. So to, to just, just if I am to think of how, how to make this more prevalent, how to make more people participate in CSA, right? The thing yeah. that would be the most compelling is consistency because I'll figure it out one week. That might be really annoying, but I'll yeah. keep doing it because, you know, this is something I really care about to do. So isn't part of, I mean, how do, how do you incorporate that, that, that sort of aspect of sustainability into it? Because mm. I would want to convince somebody who would go to the grocery store or somebody who wouldn't be participating in it otherwise that this is a good idea. It's, that's, that's a hard thing to do. And that's you're getting into like actual cultures and society standards and things that we go by. Um, convenience, like you said, is, is huge. Um, that's why supermarkets and all that, they became what they are because people can just go and buy whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, you don't have to think about seasons. You can get avocados in the middle of December, right? right. Um, but that's how it used to be. You had to change your diet depending on the season. And it's, I mean, I don't know if we can really get people to do that. It's hard enough to get people to recycle, right? And that's just one more step out of the normal things that they do, which is like take waste to a bin. Um, but forcing people or encouraging people to do CSAs and get that food um, that they might not otherwise eat, knowing a lot of people and how picky they can be or how inexperienced their palates can be, um, that is really challenging. Um, so I don't know if that's really going to be a super viable thing, but at least supporting local farms is because they'll have stuff that you're bound to like, right? Um, and it is more expensive or it can be more expensive than the supermarket. Definitely. Uh, but even just a little bit every week helps ensure that local economy, that, uh, the survival of that farmer. And that's just going to make your neighborhood or your, your entire region that much better, uh, better off because there is access to food. So say, I don't know, global catastrophe, catastrophe strikes. There is a farm, um, they're growing food. Um, but all of the money that you give that farmer just feeds back into your local economy, which affects your taxes and all that stuff. So your entire region becomes healthier. Um, right. I think the point of uh, sort of eliminating that single point of failure is very interesting. Yeah. So on, a, on a global scale, say something happens to these giant corporate farms, you still have mm -hmm. this level of farm that has been supported and is still, you know, providing you with what you need to live right it's, it's just it's really that important uh yeah oh, it totally is uh these in these gigantic farms they're usually monocultures right so they have a gigantic amount of acreage just corn just soybean just potatoes um and the issue with monocultures when you have all of these uh usually like uh clone plants they're all just the same exact genetic variety um planted so close to each other is that pests can become really, they can grow exponentially if they find, you know, a way in. If you have some sort of insect that eats corn and they find themselves in a field of, you know, acres upon acres of corn, they can multiply and grow like crazy. So that's why all these pesticides have to be used because otherwise you can't really control these bugs and your entire crop would die. Um, diseases, pathogens also have the same issue. So that's when you need your fungicides and other things. And um, all of a sudden you can have entire crops of corn die or um, like the entire banana 
uh, all the bananas that are grown, which are all like the same kind, um, they, this pathogen could just become really serious and you could have a pandemic or an epidemic of this pathogen and there's like no banana crop that entire year or that entire, you know, whatever. So when you plant things in a diverse fashion, um, you know, you have little farms usually do that because they, they have to have a certain amount of space for each crop um, and they can sell in farmer's markets so there's more diversity. Uh, when you have diversity in just an agriculture setting, you're reducing that ability for that pathogen to expand or that bug to grow as crazy because they might like corn, but the rest of the crop isn't corn. So they can only grow a certain amount. It's a lot easier to control. Um, so it's healthier in that way chemically. Um, but those big farms very well might fail catastrophically one day because that bug just goes crazy. Uh, and that's obviously, that would be awful for the food system if we only relied on them because all of a sudden there's no corn. There's no, corn makes ethanol, right? So there's fewer gas and corn's also used to feed cows, livestock. So then there's a shortage on livestock. So it's just this exponential effect. Right. And it seems like we're in too deep to stop. So instead of actually cutting back, the move is to innovate, quote, on uh, how to make it less susceptible to failure. So that looks like let's let's uh, maybe genetically further further genetically modify so that they're resistant, right? Right, but then that makes this like positive feedback loop of now you have genetically modified corn that's resistant to this pathogen, but that pathogen is going to mutate and evolve because they have way faster life cycles than we do. Like over the span of one human, they might evolve thousands upon millions of times. So they're going to eventually become adapted to that new DNA that makes it resistant and they're going to be able to attack it again. So you're getting these, um, these pesticide and herbicide and fungicide resistant varieties of these pests now existing. And they're just that much more powerful. The same thing with, uh, with the flu, you know, every year it evolves and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. The flu that we have now, you had given to someone maybe, I don't know, 200 years ago, it might be the equivalent of COVID at the moment. Uh, because it's just that strong, but we've adapted to it. So it's this continual cycle of adaptation, um, but we're making stronger pests. Right. So th there's like, like something interesting happening with how people are dealing with that on a consumer, on a sort of a consumer level. Hmm. I think people are starting to become aware or already did start to become aware that this might be a problem. And that's why the emergence of like health food stores and uh, stores that are more uh, sort of sustainability minded uh, mm -hmm. became a thing and people are buying into it. And furthermore, they're paying more for what might seem like the same product. Yeah. So the, I feel like, I guess, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on those? Is that, is that legitimate or is it just another, another way to market and uh, still have the same underlying issues? <laughs> Well, it's definitely going to take a long time to change. So the underlying issues are going to stay uh, for at least a while. But if you have that consciousness starting to spread, however little effect it might do uh, or make it at, uh, at first, it's going to uh, trickle down into everyone. You know, they're going to tell their friends, every, all their friends are going to tell their friends. And slowly but surely, the entire society might be more sustainably minded. And if that happens, all sudden laws start to be passed and all these things start to change. Um, so even if it is just people going to Whole Foods and buying organic cucumbers that cost $4 a pound, um, those $4 a pound 
hopefully are going to the farmer a little bit more and promoting these systems, um, these ideas of organic, which a lot of it is corrupt and um, difficult to actually track, but it's a start, right? You, you, you make people be conscious about the issue and they might start to think about that issue in other regards. It's not just being sustainable about your food and where it's coming from or how it's grown. It's maybe your clothes or the products that you buy or how you live your life. You know, how much do you drive? How efficient your car is? That stuff. Right. So I think there's something, there's something really to this that is quite reassuring because it's, it always seemed to me, at least early on, that the most compelling way to get some consumer behavior to change is by making it cheaper. But this is not been yeah. the case, right? This is kind of the opposite. That's true. So that, that's very reassuring in the way. And, and I think even yeah. if CSA ends up being a little bit more expensive, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that's reassuring. But here, 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 like, here's a question. What in, in terms of maybe even percentage of land, like what is the difference between the farmer that you're supporting with CSA and this giant uh, corporate farm? Like, wh- I guess on the spectrum of, of things, how do you, how do you compare? There's, man, it's, it's a fraction of a percent. Uh, these small farms are, I mean, from half an acre, maybe even less to maybe 10 acres, 12 acres. You know, that's a, that's a small farm considered. What, what's uh, an acre? Just, just for my reference. Geez, an acre. Uh, I'm not sure. It's like, that's like a measurement roughly, that I'm not sure about. <laughs> roughly, am I, am, is my house... You know, I think plots of, of land, like uh, standard houses uh, in the U.S., it's like maybe an eighth of an acre, a quarter acre. Okay, so that's a good uh, reference. So you just, you know, it's like a, yeah. a, a small, na- like a street, like both sides of a street. <laughs> yeah, it's like maybe maybe eight houses put together, but it depends on the neighborhood, something like that. So it's, yeah. it's a significant portion of land, but it's not giant, right? Okay. Um, so you can do a lot in a single acre of land. People think about it and it's like, oh yeah, let's just have grass, a couple of decorative bushes, we'll have a pool, you know, stuff like that. But in all that land space, if you don't just do grass or bushes, um, you can grow a lot of linear feet, which is how they're referred to, uh, of just rows of vegetables. Uh, there's a book that I read, uh, talks about this farm that was super, super successful they had a single acre of land where their house that they lived in was um, a chicken coop, I think, a little orchard of, of fruits. And, you know, in the orchard, you don't really harvest vegetables because the trees just stay and the rest was crops. And they were able to generate over three figures, I think, like in the three figure realm um, every single year in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's successful. You can do it. Um, but the difference between that little acre farm and I don't know, like the Papa John's farms, which are thousands of acres, it's, it's, I mean, that's the issue. And that's why they can charge so little for the crop, right? It's economies of scale. They have these giant tractors that can harvest or take care of like eight rows at the same time. They're spraying them with insecticides, but all this stuff, it really doesn't add up to much in the end compared to what they're actually getting. Um, like when they're selling this stuff, um, some of these tractors are even like self-driving like right out of interstellar. They're just, they have a GPS that's super accurate and it follows rows. It's like a path um, that it follows. And it, so it's super easy to program and one guy can run a thousand acre farm. Whereas, you know, for one acre, if you're harvesting everything by hand, you probably need two people, maybe three. Um, 
to really keep up with all the work. But uh, in terms of giving people jobs, right? Uh, reducing the unemployment rate, farms are a pretty great way to potentially do that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. So the, okay, that, that really gives me a, a sense of, of the size that we're talking about. So on one extreme end, you have Papa John's farms, McDonald's farms. Yeah. And you have these small farms that are providing your, your CSA, mm-hmm. if that's the right way to say it. Yes, yes. And then one thing that, that's been compelling to me or was compelling to me at one point was a sort of decentralized farm, hmm. right? So in terms of total surface area in your home, right, within your home, yeah. there, there's, there's a certain fraction not being used. So if you could oh, yeah. just have, I don't even know, uh, a little container, Whatever, whatever it ends up being, where, you, where you're growing uh, your carrots, your tomatoes, your bell peppers, whatever it ends up being, and you do that per house, per neighborhood, you're, you're somehow approximating slowly what would have been an acre without really modifying the underlying infrastructure of the community. Yeah. So yeah, that, that seems to me right. like what would be an other, on, on the other extreme of the, um, the corporate, giant corporate farm. A decentralized farm. You're absolutely right. Um, and there's this, um, I think they're an organization or a company or just a group of people that started doing it actually here in Florida. Um, they're called fleet farms. Um, they're, I think, based in Orlando. That's the whole idea. They went to these neighborhoods of people, you know, neighborhoods that don't have housing associations that say you have to have grass and it has to be this high. Neighborhoods that are a little bit more free. They asked the people there if they uh, didn't mind if um, this fleet farm grew vegetables on their lawn where they weren't being used and gave them some of the vegetables in return as payment, basically for using their land. A lot of people said yes. And so you have this, um, this armada of people on bikes going around neighborhoods, stopping at every house, harvesting the vegetables that are grown on the lawns of these houses. And they're actually able to generate quite a bit. Uh, and, and it's grown to, I think, over acres, uh, you know, a couple acres at this point, if not more. Um, so that's, it's, it's a really cool concept, but it requires a lot of community to, to make it happen. Right. Uh, but it's still a fantastic idea if people got behind it. Yeah, I guess this is a very interesting caveat that it requires a lot of community for it to happen. I feel like even right. though we're need... geographically living near each other, there's not really necessarily community. It's, that's, yeah, that's a crazy part. People used to know their neighbors, right? Now we, you don't know who lives next door. You don't talk to them. You don't say hi. Yeah. Uh, but that actually might be an issue that is resolved with something like fleet farms, where all of a sudden neighbors can talk because they have something in common. It's like, oh, my eggplants were beautiful this week. Like your eggplants are looking good. You know, the products that they're growing uh, and they can, they can talk and relate. And all of a sudden they're becoming more educated about the food because they're actually seeing it be grown. And that might lower the, uh, the fear of entry. Maybe they start farming themselves because they're learning from these people that are farming on their land. So now they start growing some peppers in their backyard. And all of a sudden you start reducing this need to uh, buy peppers from Walmart where they're cheapest or wherever. And it, it just kind of feeds this, this more sustainable um, cycle. So I, I'm really on board with that. I think it would be great in many ways, right? I, I would love a situation where I don't have to buy eggs anymore. I just yeah. go to the person who has the chicken coop because they have too many eggs and they're trying to get rid of them. That I get my uh, eggplants, my zucchinis, my whatever your staples are. I get them because they can be easily grown. 
But the thing that my mind goes to is what would happen with these corporations at that point? What, what, what do you think the response might be, right? Mm-hmm. If suddenly in the stores, you, st- you see this drastic reduction in consumption of, of produce. Like, That's you- interesting. I mean, I've, I have no idea. I mean, if, if these giant companies are too big to fail, um, then I'm sure that, you know, people stop, if, if people stop buying zucchinis, they might adapt, um, but they'd have to adapt somehow. Uh, they'd have to either start selling off their land because they're not making enough off of it, um, which would maybe go to smaller farmers. Uh, maybe they start changing what they produce. Uh, maybe Papa John's doesn't do pizzas anymore. They go into, I don't know, soups. Uh, they start competing with Campbell's, right? Uh, they're creaming all the unused peppers into like pepper soups. Uh, I don't know, man. Those big companies, they have so much money. They could just evolve and change and do whatever they wanted, I'm sure. Right. I, I, I guess so. It's a, it's a very interesting hypothetical. My mind goes to the negative where they have lobbyists say that this is no longer uh, an ethical way to do things or something of the sort. Oh, yeah. And they have, uh, you know, basically they stop you. They stop the community farms. That, that would be my thought. <laughs> that would probably happen. You're probably right. right. You could probably get uh, the FDA involved and say, oh, this is a, a, a sort of, you know, an exchange of, of consumable food and therefore it must be regulated a certain way. You can't achieve those without going through this process, boom, you've eliminated the possibility of community farms. Yeah, and th- there's a bunch of ways that they could do that. They could say, oh, all these people have, you know, pet cats and dogs and hamsters that are going outside onto the, the actual farms. And so they're, you know, sullying the products uh, with uh, hazardous waste. There's a ton of things that they could definitely say. Uh, I think that would have to then be a matter of, of change of local government. Um, hopefully maybe one of those people in the government live in those neighborhoods that are growing food. And so they, they can fight back against those lobbyists and say, Hey, no, you don't take away my tomatoes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, I guess here's another hypothetical. We'll play with some hypotheticals. Uh, suppose you, you, you have a situation where you have these local farms, maybe you even have the decentralized sort of system of farms and together they're able to, basically meet or surpass the demand that's currently that currently exists what mm-hmm. what would you do with all of the land that you've saved right all of this uh, arable land that these giant corporations are using could, like what, what could you what, what are the possible possibilities there i was actually thinking about this the other day um it'd be so there's there's a ton of things that all that land could go to right um the u.s is one of the most one of the largest con, uh, countries with the fewest or the, the least uh, population density in most of the country. So to be honest, if a lot of that space wasn't being utilized, it might just be best to let it be wild. Uh, if you imagine the entire or a big part of the West that used to be just bison roaming territory uh, was given back to the bisons, you might have a resurgence of the bison population um and just leave it be this gigantic wilderness that we don't really uh we don't really bother um for trekking for safaris for people to to enjoy nature uh you can do that with with forests everywhere um there's a lot of local um environments that are being threatened because of all the farming and development and everything that's taking up all these lands. florida has so many acres dedicated to citrus 
the Florida Panthers endangered, you know, um, they're getting rid of all the forests. So that's a huge thing that I think would be great because now if you live in a big busy city, all of a sudden you have a park that you can go to nearby, which I think is a huge, huge plus. If you can go hiking somewhere that's 15, 30 minutes away from your city, rather than having to drive an hour, two hours, or maybe even more to get to the nearest park. Um, I think that's a big reason why New York's even been successful because it has Central Park. Without Central Park, it would just be too much, right? People love Central Park because it's a way to get away from the, the grit and the grime of the city. They can just be in the peace of nature. And it's even um, a medical fact that people, when they're exposed to green light, which is the same color of light that goes through plant or like tree canopies, it helps reduce the pain and migraines a ton. So it has an effect in your body that even might relieve stress in that sense, or just might reduce pain. People have fewer headaches, uh, moving soil around with your hands. Also, I think it releases endorphins or something like that. So it makes you happier. So, so there's this huge tie that we have with nature, right? That's, that's not going to go away. Right. Well, um, the, the, the interesting thing that to, to me then is, you would have to t do some serious terraforming for, for this to be the case, right? Uh, I, do, I do agree that you would stop encroaching on existing forests, existing land, but then mm -hmm. all that land that's already been completely flattened so that you can grow soy and corn. Well, I guess, what, what are the, what's the feasibility of having places like, like we were talking about in, in, those, in those areas? Oh, I, I mean, it's super feasible. I think uh, if, if anything, all those lands become prairies again. Um, if you leave land, just, just let it be. It'll eventually, weeds might take over for a while and the weeds will die out. And then all the hardier, longer, slower growth plants will start to take place. And from a field of, of weeds, all of a sudden you have a prairie of wildflowers that might evolve into an actual small forest. So all that all that land would eventually just go back to being wild if you gave it enough time, uh, which is the incredible part. So it really would be less of, of us reforming the land and like reshaping it back to what it was of just letting nature do its thing. Uh, the biggest thing might be actually like making the pathways for the say, uh, you know, quote unquote parks, the, the driveways and the parking lots for people to get there. Um, that might be the biggest issue. Uh, but that also asks the, the other question, if we have so much more land uh, that isn't being farmed on, would it just be the perpetual expansion of uh, suburbia? You know, these huge suburbs that just take up all the space uh, with cookie cutter houses and, you know, nice little playgrounds for children and you don't have any nature left. So that's, that's another huge issue. Right. Yeah. Again, I, I, I usually tend to lean optimistic, but it feels, it feels like that's what would happen. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, we have all this new land. Uh, we don't need shopping malls anymore, but let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's put up some more uh, area for servers because we, we need more server rooms because we're, we're this huge data economy. <laughs> that's true. And, and yeah, I mean, it wouldn't just be residential, it'd be industrial spaces. Um, but suburbs became super popular because they're cheaper. Right. If you live an hour, two hours away from the city, you can get a, a mansion for the same price as uh, 
uh, an apartment that's a quarter, one sixth of the space in the city, uh, which is really silly when you think about it because that apartment in the city, maybe it's in a 10 story tall building. It's using one tenth of the space, the actual land space as that house, if not less than that one tenth. So it's way, way more efficient uh, to live there, energy-wise, uh, resource-wise, land-wise. So living in the city should be much cheaper than it should be to live way out in the suburbs. But because you're way out in the suburbs, they make those houses cheap so that people move out, right? And that's that kind of was what initiated the, uh, the not the brain drain, the, the people leaving cities to the suburbs. Um, but the further away you live from cities, it perpetuates this uh, this terrible thing that we've seen come to fruition. It's the further away from the city you live, the further you have to drive. The further you have to drive, the more you're on the road, which makes you feel less safe on the road, it makes you feel like you need a bigger car. That's when people start getting these huge SUVs that have uh, huge gas tanks uh, so that they can make those large or those long drives that are safer. Uh, so you start to promote the gas industry which are not to promote it, you're funding it and the car industry. So there's so many more people getting cars because you can't get anywhere unless you have a car. And it just becomes this, this mass of material that's just spread out everywhere that's super inefficient. But that's the standard, at least in this country in so many places. Well, so something that I've been thinking about recently is how work from home affects that paradigm. I think mm. for the first time, in a very short amount of time, it's we've gone from I think it was one out of six people working from home to almost wow. half working from home. Jeez, so that's incredible! Like in in the matter of less than a year, that's happened. And suppose suppose that that kind of stays because people because companies have realized that hey, we can still have the same amount of production. We can actually reduce expenses in terms of brick and mortar costs. And right. can probably get our employees to be happier because they get to be with their families more often. So yeah, you're not stuck on traffic for an hour. Do you, do you think that that kind of puts a wrench into the feedback loop, the positive feedback loop of I need a bigger car, I need to go farther, I need to rely more on fossil fuels, etc. You know, I think it just feeds it to be honest, because especially with the the situation that caused us to work from home, right? It's it's a pandemic. It's People, people are, are bad. You got to wear your mask. You can't go outside because you're going to get sick. So you don't want to see people, which means you don't want to be in populated places like cities that are so much more dense. You want to be in the less popular or less populated places, which just fuels people moving to suburbs and wanting a space separated from everybody else, which would just further the whole suburbia issue. Mm. But then I'm trying to find a silver lining here. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> the... Uh, the impotence to travel, right, to different to, to the city to commute every day, right, is not yeah. there anymore. So in some right. way, even though you are becoming more spread out, you have reduced some, reduced your footprint. That's Maybe the that's the thought. Maybe you you could definitely be driving less and get more efficient cars. No, that's that's definitely a possibility, um, and it's it's crazy really to think about it because. The, the way cities are uh, designed in a lot of uh, big parts of Europe, uh, because these cities were developed before the advent of cars, is that they're actually meant to be walkable. You know, there's the, the spaces, the size of the streets, everything, they're, they're meant to be walkable or because they were 
designed when there were horse wagons and buggies, like th that kind of vehicle around. Um, so cars spread cities out a lot more, which is why cities in the US like Orlando, um, Florida are so spread out that you can't really walk anywhere. There's, there's no uh, shading anywhere. There's, uh, you know, to get to your nearest supermarket, it's a mile. In Europe, there's a supermarket every city block and, you know, uh, in a lot of parts of Europe, not everywhere in Europe. But anyway, um, those cities are, are much more efficient. And I feel like it makes people happier to be able to walk because you get exercise, which makes you happier. Um, people really enjoy their private time in their cars, you know, being able to sing out loud and to whatever song they, they want in their privacy of their vehicle. So that's a huge thing here. People are never going to get rid of their cars. But um, I think if, if you're thinking about it just economically, right, and people are spending less on gas, they might enjoy walking more because all of a sudden their pockets are getting a little deeper and they can use that money that they aren't spending on gas and those hours that they aren't spending in traffic to travel to and do things that they wanted to do or buy the products that they really enjoy, the food that they really enjoy. Um, so maybe, maybe in that aspect, it would actually be beneficial, right? Because they're driving less, they're happier, and that makes it for just a better society, maybe? Well, I think one, <laughs> one thing that I keep hearing about is, and I've, I've experienced this, is uh, people go outside more, right? Even yeah. though they want to stay away from others, there, there's this idea that, oh, I want to go see nature. I want to go to the park. I want to go for a mm -hmm. bike ride because I can't go to the, the shopping center. I can't go to, to downtown to do such and such thing. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's one of those interesting silver linings. That's true. That's true. There are those people that, that are still going to bars and clubs and those places are packed, <laughs> but it's, it's maybe creating a division, right? Right. I a think division between these people. Right. Both, both are possible. I think that's what right. has been demonstrated. It's like this thing that we forgot about, which is this, the, the park that we've now terraformed out of the old farms. That, that's a possibility yeah. again. <laughs> want to go go go, on a hike. go play in the water or something yeah you can take your dog for a hike through the woods instead of going to the dog park and all of a sudden wow this forest is huge and your dog's really happy because it's getting to smell all the smells uh and you feel happier because you were under the green light of the of the canopy of the trees and you got some exercise rather than just sitting on a bench watching your dog play with other dogs and there's so many possibilities that mm. uh, of goodness that this could definitely bring about yeah well, so this is this is like the perfect segue, right? Is there are this is currently a very interesting time with the number of possibilities because you are working within a basically new infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's still being molded as we we live out every day. So, as someone who is a work, you know, a young working individual thinking about sustainability, like what what do you make of this, and how do you how do you completely take I, I guess take this opportunity to its fullest extent? Oh man. And I think from this, and I'm hopeful that, that people will just be a bit more conscious uh, about their actions. You know, if you have to be more conscious about your actions in our current setting, because you have to think I have to wear a mask. I have to stay a certain distance from people. So it just makes people more aware about their, their immediate actions, which I think is a really great thing. And if we can cement that into practice, if everybody's always more aware of what they're doing, if they're going to go flying somewhere, they think, wait, am I sick? Should I wear a mask? Am I going to get other people on the plane sick? Stuff like that. I think that it just opens the door into people being more aware and more conscious about their actions in everything. 
Um, so I think that that's a, that's a pretty great silver lining, to be honest. Um, and with everything that's been going on, places like Venice that have, Venice, Italy have so many, so much pollution in all the waterways in the city, wildlife has returned. Um, so getting people to stop for as long as they did and just stop all human activity, they can see this nature return and they might think, wow, actually I, I like Venice more. When, when I open my window, it doesn't smell like sewer outside, it's, it's fresh air. And so they'll think, well, if me not doing this caused this, maybe I can stop doing this, right? Um, so I think that's, that's a really possible thing, which, which would be wonderful, to be honest. I agree. I agree. And uh, I think it's, I still see it as an opportunity, right? There, mm. like, as a designer, you can do something with that awareness that you probably couldn't have done before. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a huge market for um, things like, I mean, water bottles, clothes, um, cars, the electric car right now. So it's booming uh, because Tesla's done a great job with it, but also because people are thinking, well, maybe I don't want to use fossil fuels. So this consciousness is definitely going to fuel or has the potential of fueling those companies and those products and those organizations that are sustainably minded, which is a great thing. Um, so all I can hope for is, is that that does continue. Um, in my particular field, you know, looking into agriculture and the systems that I'm, I'm helping to design um, or wanting to design, that can fuel into passive systems, which are actually way more energy efficient ways of, of designing uh, controlled environments. So houses are controlled environments. We keep it between 70 and 78 degrees Fahrenheit year round, because that's what's comfortable to humans. Um, but maintaining high temperatures like that in the winter or low temperatures like that in the summer, you need a huge power guzzling AC unit, right? Or fans, but there's way more efficient ways of doing that. Um, and if this consciousness can spread to how people live and the houses that they live and how they design homes or buildings, uh, I think we would be making steps into really, really positive change in a global scale, or at least in a societal scale, in a country scale, um, towards being more energy efficient. Do, do you think that the technology to achieve what you're saying currently exists, or it's predicated on some kind of uh, new, I guess, new technology that allows us to, to even approximate what you're saying? Well, I think, I think a lot of this technology already exists. Um, things like insulation right that's huge just insulating your attic uh where you live to higher than what is expected or rated uh has a really great um capacity in reducing the amount of heat that your house gains during the day and loses at night um, and if you think about that over the span of a year you know however much that insulation might cost you right now it'll save you uh tens of hundreds perhaps of dollars during the uh, entire year so it'll pay itself off and then after it pays itself off, it'll just be savings for you um, until it stops working. So insulation is a huge, um, huge aspect of building things passively. But another big aspect is how you orient your, your houses. Say you have a house in Colorado, somewhere that experiences a lot of cold, and you want it to be heated by the sun because the sun can do a really good job at heating things in the winter. Um, all you have to do is orient it towards the south because you're 
a lot further north than the equator. So if you look south, you're going to see more of the sun more of the time. If you look north, it's going to be like devoid of sun. North winds also are a lot colder. So if you make a house that, say, doesn't have any windows towards the north, or is, say, the ceiling just goes straight down to the ground, you don't need a wall there, the winds can move over and through and past the house a lot faster, which means it, it uh, lessens the amount of heat that's lost from the house. You only have windows towards the south. In the wintertime, the sun penetrates through those windows and heats up the inside of the house a lot more. All of a sudden, you have a house that heats itself just using the sun and loses less heat towards the winter or towards the north in the winter. And little things like that, if, if everywhere that uh, those houses or houses can be done in that way, uh, neighborhoods can be oriented in a way that allows houses to be, do that or even entire buildings uh, take advantage of that. Um, yeah, it can have a huge impact. Huge. Right. It seems like that that specific example is, is uh, I guess, can be used for houses that haven't been built yet, right? That's like what we're going to go forward with and be more intelligent about how we think about heating the house. But what about the current, the current infrastructure, right? The, 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 hose, the homes that already exist. So the insulation yeah. example is good in that way because you can, you can still add insulation after the fact. Oh yeah. But I guess, how, how would you incorporate this idea of passive, how, how do you refer to it? Passive? Um, passive systems. Passive uh, systems. It's, yeah, it's, um, there's definitely ways of incorporating and insulation is a huge one. Um, but windows changing, swapping out windows to more insulated windows from single pane to double pane or even triple pane that reduces the amount of heat that's lost through windows. I don't know if you've ever sat by a window in the middle of winter, you can feel cold. You feel more cold wherever that window is closest to you. Uh, that's because it's just wicking away heat because it, uh, it's got a really awful uh, R value. So it just like heat goes through it. So that's a huge way of, of uh, reducing that heat loss in whatever house that you're living in. Insulation, definitely. Um, hot water heaters, like solar heaters, where you have panels on your ceiling or your roof that are heated by the sun and feed into your, your water tank. Um, you can generate heat passively in that way. So you just absorb the heat that the sun is providing you, you heat up your water with it, and you can even have pipes run underneath the house that cycle all that hot water around. So it heats up your floor and keeps your house hotter that way too. Um, so there's a ton of ways that you can definitely do it. It'll be hard, definitely. Um, and it'll take a lot of insulation material, but uh, it would be huge returns in the end. It's like getting a solar panel, right? right. Um, there's a lot of material that goes into building that solar panel. It's true. But from a single solar panel, you can get um, not an endless supply, but a pretty good amount of energy for 10, 20, 30 years. And that energy will pay the amount of material off or the amount of cost off. Um, and then it'll just keep producing, right? So it's, it's, it's ideas that have a positive, a net positive in the end, rather than a net negative. It's not a gas car that you're constantly having to fill with gas and then it's empty and then it's done. You got a solar powered car, you can drive it as long as there's sun. Um, so it'll, it'll have fewer or a lessened cost because you're not constantly having to buy the gasoline and all that stuff. Right, but there, there's something to the, to, I guess there's two things that I think of. The upfront cost is intimidating and mm -hmm. actually doing the expected value in terms of expected total returns being net yeah. positive, right? That's a very, that's like a, you're going on faith there almost. 
right? I think it's part of the reason why not everybody already, like, why, why doesn't everybody already have sol solar panels, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And, and re regarding solar panels, I'm not too sure. So that technology, it feels like it should be more advanced than it is at the moment, but, you know, funding-wise and all that stuff uh, makes it difficult. But there's a lot of, there's potential controversy behind solar panels that I'm not too uh, educated about. So I'm not sure, but designing houses passively, there's, there's a science to it, which I was not aware of, you know, it's the same with greenhouses. Um, if you want to have a greenhouse, you know, a glass house, you grow veggies in, and you put too much glazing, too much glass or plastic um, in the middle of the day, if you don't have enough ventilation, it could get 120, 140 degrees in there if it's sunny enough and warm enough, which will bake your plants alive. Um, but that's just with having a couple panels of glass in a sealed environment, uh, which is crazy. But you can do that with a house too. If you have too many windows going facing south and the, the house that I was talking about, it can get way too hot in the house. Um, so there's a science to it and you have to calculate the amount of window area to the amount of wall space to the actual volume of the of the room um, and it gets it gets a little ugly to be honest um, but you can definitely do it and if that was a more common practice we could have programs that do that fairly easily uh, or at least a, a certain amount of people that are studied and learned and practiced in this that could you can consult with and then they could help you design your houses architects that could be a much more common practice with architects and builders and construction construction workers or um you know people that build neighborhoods um but it's not so it makes it really difficult but if you educate people and, and those systems become much more viable and much more accessible i don't think it would be that difficult it'd be as difficult as just choosing how many windows you know right this is interesting because i mean I'm trying to combine two things here, but you, you, how would we build passive systems of scale, right? In, in your words of like economies of scale, right? I feel like mm. the, the small differences, small, small benefits multiplied by a lot of people doing them, right? Add up to something mm -hmm. very significant. Or you could have oh, yeah. a few people do some very drastic thing, but it seems like that is not sustainable or quite frankly, realistic. I wonder if it's, if it's an one or the other, if it's not sustainable or realistic, because you're right, it might be more expensive up front, And that, that will definitely be an inhibiting factor for anyone that wants to do this stuff. But um, if you can calculate those returns in your investment, um, far enough along with enough data, you know, your supporters, your, your funders might be willing to go along with it. So you might be able to build a, a high rise building in the middle of the city that costs you know, millions upon millions of dollars, say it costs $1 million more uh, to build it in a way that's passive uh, or uses passive systems. But you know that 10 years down the line, your energy bill is going to be one quarter or less than what it would have been otherwise. Then you see that return on the investment pretty quickly. Right. Um, or feasibly, then those investors might be fine. So you can make those, those systems of scale. Um, I'm not sure what it would take to make a, say a, a high rise building, a uh, 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 high rise um, passive to that degree though. There's it's, it's a crazy change, right? Because for a building that size, you need huge water pumps that 
pump thousands of gallons of water a minute. Um, you need a really big power grid that can supply all that power. Um, so, so it would just, it would change the whole equation, but I think it could definitely be feasible. I see. Yeah. I guess there was, there was a bit of a misunderstanding then on my part. Well, I mean, so it's, it's really compelling. It's really compelling that you can design a passive system. And the thing that my mind goes to is, is there a way to incorporate it into current infrastructure, right? Is there, what, right. at what point does it become something that can be easily incorporated, maybe not that drastic of a change in my day-to-day so that it's very easy for me as someone who doesn't really care to, uh, to, to incorporate this into my life, right? Because e- even if it doesn't save me money and maybe it will do a net good for, for, for the earth, I am willing to entertain and change it. Like, I think that's where more, most people are getting to. It doesn't have to be, oh, it's gonna save me this much money down the road. I think the opposite. I think that's the only way that you're going to have people change is if it hurts their pocket. Right. Um, and that's, that's what causes so much change uh, everywhere. It's people will always go for the easier, the more affordable option, uh, which is what's dug the hole that we're in right now. So people that have a, a perhaps a higher sense of moral of morality as, as you do, and you're willing to do it for the sake of the earth, uh, for the benefit of ecology or, um, I don't know if that's as common as otherwise. So if you make it hurt monetarily or you make it benefit them monetarily, that's where you'll see success. If, if you can tell people that by doing this one thing or doing these couple things, they can have at the end of their fiscal year a couple thousand dollars more in their pocket, that's going to pique their interest because otherwise the earth is being benefited. If that was the case, people would eat, say, less meat right now, but they don't care. They want their burger. They don't care if that cow, you know, how much methane it produced. No, they want their burger and it's cheap. So they're going to buy their burger. Uh, But if meat wasn't uh, subsidized by the government as it is, uh, and it was actually showing the true cost of growing that beef, and it was much more expensive, people would eat less burgers, which would mean fewer cows would have to be raised, which would mean fewer or less methane being produced. It has to be a fiscal thing. It has to be economic and it has to be hurting them in their pockets. So I get what you're saying. I think that is a very compelling way to, to put it, right? You, you say this is going to either benefit you a lot, right? Mm-hmm. It'll, be, it'll be great. Or, hey, this is something that's really terrible for our planet. Here's why, right? That approach clearly hasn't worked. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder why that's the case. Right? Why can't we? Why can't we build compassion for the thing that we're living on? Is it you think it's been too too much aggression? Too much? Hey, I'm going to show you cows being literally like shot in the head and, and feel bad for them. Like, how, is there a way to to attack the problem on both fronts? And I think I think that has to do with with a couple of different things, right? So it's personality wise. People have different personalities and they respond to different things. Some people are more emotional. Some people are less emotional. And so for those people, for the, for the more emotional people, um, those might be the people that are vegans, vegetarians, you know, more sustainably minded today because they've already seen those videos of cows getting shot in the head. And they're like, oh no, I'm not doing that. Other people, they're still eating, you know, burgers because that didn't affect them that way. Um, but 
for them, it might be, I think it would again go into the economy thing, but uh, some of it has to be cultural, societal. Uh, say a lot of, or the majority of the country or the entire continent or yeah, country of India is they eat very little meat. And that might be because their religion, their culture tells them to, it might be a societal thing of meat is just way too resource intensive. So it's not uh, logical to do it. Um, places like Tibet are, are, are in a similar fashion, um, say, you know, Buddhism and all that might have a, a factor to do with it where they see animals a bit more holy and uh, a bit more in, you know, as on an equal playing field as humans. Um, but I think it, it again has to go to, to the economic side. Um, and that's, that's the way that we'd actually make change. So is, is that your current approach then? Is the change that you, you work towards, specifically you? Specifically me, um, the economic side is, is a plus to it, but no, I'm, I'm willing to spend that little bit more for that net gain um, yeah. because I can see that net gain and, and people's perceptions and if they can see short term and long term, that's, that's another huge thing, right? If, oh, actually that just reminds me of the whole other thing. Um, you were mentioning that it, it might be a lack of, of empathy that people have, that we don't care about what we're standing on or, you know, the earth, but there's a whole nother aspect to it. And that's the going into the economical side. Um, at the moment, it's, it's a matter of, can you afford to care? Right. So you have these families that have a lot of money of expendable wealth and they can go to the fancier supermarket and buy the organic produce because it is more expensive. But if you're a family that's too poor uh, or, you know, your, your, your monies aren't adding up to what they can or should be, could be, uh, you're not going to, you know, food is not going to be an issue that you're really too concerned about. You're going to be thinking about how much can I get for what I have so that I can feed my family, not necessarily what's the best that I can get to feed my family. Um, because a pound of cucumbers might cost more than a pound of flour. Um, or a cereal box. And if you don't have that much money, maybe you have two or three jobs. And so you have less time on your hands to prepare the food that you would do otherwise. So you have to buy pre-prepared foods because that amount of time is just not a resource that you have. Um, so there's a, almost two sides to it, right? It's how do we change our economic system so that people have that more expendable income so that they can support and get the fresher foods um, because they might really want to, but they just can't afford to. But then how do we change our, our, our cultural perceptions? Um, and maybe we do that through people's pockets. Um, you start to force people to make more sustainable decisions by actually charging higher taxes on things that are more carbon heavy. Um, and people might start to think like, oh, this is actually because it's less sustainable. So it is a good thing that they're forcing us to do that, even though they might not find it pleasant at the beginning. Uh, recycling is an excellent way of doing that. If you had, if you charged people for the amount of trash that they produced every month, you know, uh, they had a quota that they couldn't go above. And if they went above, they were charged more for their trash. People might start thinking, well, let's produce less trash. Let's buy things that have less packaging. Uh, but it has to start somewhere. And sadly, a lot of people don't have that level of thinking of like, well, maybe this isn't a good thing. Let me think about it because they're just trying to get through day to day and that day to day is hard enough. So I, I want to dissect what you said there really quick. Uh, the trash example, having a quota. Right. And if you go above that, you pay more. It would seem like 
given given our current system, the trash mm-hmm. companies should do that today, right? They're making more money. They have to do less work. It's better for the environment. It's better for them as a company. So all the economic forces align in their eyes. Why doesn't it happen? Well, I mean, potentially, right? Um, trash companies, if you want to say dump something at a landfill, um, they'll charge you. If you have a certain volume, they'll charge you like per the volume. So they're actually making a, a benefit from the amount of trash that you're producing. Uh, some of them actually bottle or collect the methane that's being produced in these landfills and potentially use it or sell it. There's a, um, a kind of plastic that's being utilized or made today that's made from this dirty methane. So there is a possible benefit that they're getting from the amount of trash that they're, we're producing. Uh, but if they were to implement those kinds of systems where you were charged for the amount of trash that you produced, people might go for the, you know, the competition that doesn't do that. So they'd lose some business, um, which would not be beneficial to them. But it also raises the, the question of ethics, right? Is it ethical to tell someone how much trash they can produce? Uh, especially in a society like this one, such a consumerist society where they're telling you, you got to drink Coke, you got to buy chips, you got to do all these things that produce so much waste. How are you now? It's a, it's a hypocritical system. You, you were telling people to buy more things, but now you're charging them for buying too many things. And uh, I think you'd have people really, really annoyed or, or bothered by, by that. So you have to stay consistent. I, I, I get all of your arguments, actually. That makes a lot of sense. I, would just, I was just thinking that what if all of the trash companies did this, right? And now they're making great. a boatload more money. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's not, it's not in line with the consumerist mentality. So, right. Okay. Uh, right. Go ahead. No, it's, it's, Waste management systems are very tied with, with the society and the political sphere of a country, right? If you have um, political bodies that say that a certain amount of land can be allotted to landfills uh, or should be allotted to landfills, all of that is, is really high-level decision-making because all of the land that you see, someone owns it. And a lot of it is the government because it's just unused land. So they are making those decisions. So if those local governments or the higher up governments um, choose to change laws and policies that make landfill or companies that are manage waste actually implement things like that, like charging for trash, then you, you could actually make that happen. Um, and people would just have to go with it because now the politics are behind it too. Uh, but just as a pure capitalist thing, Nah, no. <laughs> Rip. Yeah. <laughs> Consumerism is too powerful. Right. Well, I, okay, so this brings me to like a more fr- fine, fine grain approach, right? You, so you specifically, you're, you're participating in the CSA. Are there other yeah. very sustainability minded, environmentally minded things that you do on a daily basis that you have some sort of efficacy doing? Yeah, uh, no, definitely. Um, one thing that I, um, I'm trying to, or I, I have been very conscious about for, for the past uh, year or two is sleeping in not 65 or 70 degree rooms that are, you know, cooled to that point, way different than what's outside. Just kind of 
leaving the house at a, at a temperature that's constant during the summer that's a little higher than average and sleeping with bed sheets that are thinner. Uh, we, we love these thick, fluffy comforters, but that just keeps us so much warmer. And the warmer we are at night, the colder we put the ACs. And the colder we put the ACs, the more energy we're using. So just that simple of a decision of not sleeping with a big fluffy comforter and sleeping one, with one that's thinner, smaller, and keeps you cooler means that you don't have to keep the AC so low. Uh, so you're using less energy. Uh, it's something as simple as that. Um, how many times you wash your clothes or wear your clothes. Uh, you don't have to constantly throw your clothes away as some people do. They're just buying new clothes all the year. Um, but you can wear a pair of pants more than once. Um, and that will just compound on itself. And it'll result in fewer washes being done, fewer, fewer dryings being done. Um, the way I eat is a huge part of uh, me trying to be sustainable. It's not just through CSA, um, which supplies vegetables, but um, trying to eat less meat. So that's something I've been doing. I've been a partial vegetarian. I eat meat once, maybe a month, um, so that I have a, a smaller carbon footprint, right? So I eat a lot of lentils. I eat a lot of legumes, beans, chickpeas, things like that. Um, and I'm healthy. I don't, I don't need that level of protein intake to be healthy and thousands, if not millions of people around the world um, live in that way. And it's fine. They don't need to eat a steak every single day to get their protein intake. Um, I drink a lot of water, you know, uh, I don't necessarily buy a lot of juice or bottled drinks. So it's, it's just little things like that. Oh, and toothpaste. That's another, that's a new one. <laughs> um, trying to go away from toothpaste bottles, which are not recyclable, uh, into toothpaste bottle free alternatives like, uh, tooth bites. They're like this little, um, it's like a pill of toothpaste material that you just bite and chew. And then you can refill a little glass container with them every month. Um, and it's, it's great. Um, I'm producing so much less waste, uh, because, I compost a lot of the vegetable mass too. Um, so all the, you know, the onion skins, the seeds of the things that you don't eat, I'll just throw in the composter. So now my trash isn't smelly because it's filled with things that are rotting, which means I can have one bag of trash for a lot longer because I don't have to take it out because it's full of fruit flies. Um, I'm producing less waste because I don't have toothpaste bottles and other things like that that I'm throwing out. And it's, it's just a lot easier to be honest in the end um, not having to deal with all that stuff. Right. But it's, it's, it's like a funny how it's the same kind of thing with maybe we don't know too much about solar panels, but initially it'll be really annoying, but eventually it'll be okay. Eventually yeah. it'll go used to it. Eventually it'll be fine. Yeah. So it's just like building fun. habits. Uh, bad habits are hard to break, but when you break them, it can, I mean, it can be great. Uh, <laughs> You can make a habit out of these things. And that's something I'm doing with my roommates. They're not used to composting. So every once in a while, I'll have to catch them. It's like, hey, don't throw that banana peel in the trash can, throw it in the compost bin. Um, but they've, they've caught on and they don't, they don't make those mistakes anymore. And so now their normal is doing the compost. Suppose everybody in the United States started doing these small things that you're talking about. Let's just take one of them. Say they started composting, mm -hmm. right? What, what kind of impact would that have? That would be drastic, I think. If everybody composted their food, all of this organic mass that is going to the landfill, which 
say it's only 10% of the mass that's actually going to the uh, landfill, which I doubt it's that low, um, but maybe, maybe it's even lower. Anyways, 10% of that organic mass isn't going to landfills. It's getting composted. That's so many cubic meters, so many tons of compost, which is fantastic for fertilizing uh, all sorts of farms, uh, any kind of land that is being generated. And that compost is actually create, uh, causing a net benefit, right? So it's not rotting in a landfill, which means that methane that would have otherwise been produced is not being produced, which is, means fewer greenhouse gases are being emitted into the atmosphere, which is reducing global warming. Um, that compost can then be sold back to the society and be used. So all that, all that monetary loss from, from food waste now becomes a monetary gain because you're producing a product that you can sell back. So it's actually moving the economy more than a landfill does, which is beneficial for any politician's uh, you know, viewpoint. Um, and that compost is then feeding the natural systems, which are growing the things that we eat. Um, and we have to rely less on chemical fertilizers because we have all this compost that becomes that much cheaper that more people can buy because it's that much cheaper because it's that much higher of a supply. So it's just this huge positive feedback loop. So let's work within the framework of deep pockets, right? That, that's, that's the one that's most compelling. How do right. you take a principle like this, a principle like composting that you've mm -hmm. shown me sort of the cycle of and make it compelling enough for someone to actually do on a daily basis? Maybe not even daily basis, but to incorporate into their life. Right. Uh, well, to me, one of the biggest benefits has been the fact that my trash is not smelly at all. And that's, it's a, it's a thing that you don't think about until it's there, right? All of a sudden you open your trash bin and there's this rancid smell that just, just putrefies the entire air of the kitchen. You have to leave, vent it out, or there's fruit flies growing in it because banana peels are just rotting away. Um, if you don't throw all that stuff in with your paper, or whatever waste, um, you don't have that issue. So you can leave and not worry about your trash um, being thrown out because it's going to stink up your entire house. You don't have to worry about raccoons uh, breaking down your, your trash bins, trying to get at that rotting food that's inside your trash bin because it's being composted. And in compost, uh, if it's done properly, it doesn't smell, which is wonderful. And there's a ton of ways that you can do it, right? You can use worms, you can use, uh, do anaerobic composting or aerobic composting, but none of these systems really smell. Um, so you don't have that smell aspect. You have, again, this product that you're making in the end, which is beneficial that you can use, uh, pay for, sell for, uh, or sell it. And your trash is not smelly. And honestly, to me, I'm, I'm a big guy on smells. I don't like my kitchen to smell bad. Um, so if I don't have that happening, it's that much less stress, right? It's more work every single time that I'm throwing things away because I have to think and move things to just one more bin. But that is a small amount of energy that I think compounds into a pretty big benefit in the end. I'm having to take that trash bag out fewer times. I don't have to worry about it breaking and spilling all this rotting uh, produce onto my floor or my dog getting into it. Um, I don't have to worry about that because it's just not an issue. And if I take that even further and all the waste that I'm actually throwing away um, is separated into like recyclables, then there's that much less waste and all the recyclable stuff is not getting, um, pests aren't getting into it because there's nothing there for them either. 
Um, so it's just fewer trips that I have to take to the trash can and it's not smelly and it's, it's less work for me really. Right. But I guess that depends because if you really enjoy taking a trip from your house to the trash can to, you know, throw away all your stuff because that's the only way that you get exercise every week, then awesome. But if you don't, you know, if you like sitting in your couch and enjoying watching TV while your trash is just a small amount of what it would have been otherwise, and you don't have to worry about that smell, then that might be better for you. <laughs> it seems like you would have to do it and be exposed to the idea to even, mm-hmm. to even consider it, right? I think before you mentioned this, the, the, the composting thing was so far removed from my conscious awareness that there was no chance I would just like come across composting. Yeah. So then I guess it, it becomes a matter of awareness, right? You it, like, this is a possibility. It's not as hard as you think. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's how you might do it. <laughs> like there's that educational component. It's, it's definitely that, the, the educational point and being aware of it. Um, but there's the other aspect of composting at home is hard. I mean, say you live in an apartment, you don't really have land to do that stuff in. Um, or in the middle of a city, it's, it's hard for it to, to go somewhere. So incorporating that into waste management systems that are actually spread out throughout an entire society is huge. If you have a bin that is supplied by your city that's picked up weekly, that is for compost, then you don't have to worry about how you're doing the system. So which would add more weight or and, uh, make it more time-consuming and, and more stress, uh, stressful to do composting because you have to worry about how you are managing the system, which would actually make it potentially more expensive. Um, but a lot of cities, um, say in Italy, they do this. Um, your compost has to be separated. In Korea, South Korea, they do this. Um, you have bags that are supplied to you that are for organic waste. So you put your organic waste in the compost bin uh, that the city provides. That makes it that much easier. And as when those systems can be used or implemented, then more people will do it because it's easier. The only reason I can compost here is not because I have somewhere to compost myself because I'm living in an apartment, is because one guy that's living in this city decided that he was going to start a composting business. And there's a couple bins by one cafe that's maybe a kilometer away from my house that composts. So I can just ride my bike for five minutes drop off my compost and then come back. So it's, it's great for me because I don't go outside unless I need to because I'm studying and working on all these things, but I can do that, get a little bit of exercise, do my little bit of good because he'll do the rest. He'll take those bins every week, which is free to me and do all the, the dirty work. Right, and there was an economic incentive enough for him to do what he's doing. Yeah, because it's free for us, which is great, right? But he is getting all of this raw resource for free, which means that if he waits a year or however long it takes for him to compost, he's going to be able to bag all of that and sell it. And sure, it might be pennies on the pound, but that still adds up to a significant enough amount that he can sell, make an income off of, and want to do what he's doing. I see. And the reason why that kind of thing is not more prevalent is because it is pennies on the pound? Well, it might be. Um, if you're going to say Lowe's or your local home uh, supplier store um, and you buy a bag of soil or compost, you're getting two cubic feet for, I don't know, 10 bucks, maybe less. So if you think about two cubic feet of organic matter, that's a certain amount of weight 
right? Um, so pounds upon pounds, that's reducing into smaller amounts because it's losing a lot of the water. So you might need eight cubic feet, 10 cubic feet or more to make those two cubic feet of compost. So yeah, it's definitely a small amount, um, just like it would be to, um, to well, no, that would be different, but um, it's, it's a small amount, which is why it's not as widely done because it's definitely not a huge money-making ordeal. And that's what people want. They wanna make the most money as quickly as possible. This is dirty, it's a little smelly, um, and you're not making a ton, but it is still a business. It's still something that you can make money off of. And in the end, when there's a need and people are trying to find jobs and that is a job that they could make, then they're probably gonna do it. It just needs to be a, a low enough level of entry or um, there has to be enough of a need, I guess. It seems like it's pretty low entry though, right? This guy oh, has yeah. a bin somewhere and he just has you drop stuff into the bin. Yeah. But he needs to talk to the, the restaurants and the places that have those trash bins to allow him to do that, right? To leave those bins there. He has to go every day or every week, however long he goes, and pick up those bins himself or have a machine that can do that. So there is some investment required. He has to have the space that he can dump all of that food waste into and leave for a year to process. He has to turn it. He has to cover it. He has to take care of it. So there is a certain amount of investment required for it to work. Otherwise, it's not going to. Um, it's not quite as high as it might seem, but it's still a dirty job. And uh, a lot of people don't like to do dirty jobs. <laughs> yeah, micro. Micro. <laughs> Man, I loved watching that show growing up. So good. So good. It really was. Things I just didn't even consider were real possibilities. Like when the guy that cleans the inside of a concrete uh, truck, you know? <laughs> yeah. I remember specifically there was one where he's uh, digging for those shooter clams. Oh, yeah. Like you're literally knees deep in mud. And you're just like shoveling these things. There, there's been times where he like cleans out septic tanks. Oh, yeah. That is something I would never be able to do. Oh. Yeah, but it's done. It's, it's it is. Fantastic. Someone has to do it. So, Someone gets paid for it. Yeah, they really do. And, and, and I'm glad that they do because yeah. that's what we need. <laughs> it's not something you'd want to do, huh? No. <laughs> Here's a question. Suppose, suppose you have, uh, I don't know what an exorbitant amount of money is, but so you have like a hundred thousand U S dollars. Mm-hmm. What? And you were, you were to bet with that money. You were to, to put some, to put that money towards something specifically for the purpose of, I don't know, uh, promoting the concept of sustainability. What, okay. what would you, how would you allocate that money? What would you, what would you, what would you put your dollar towards? Well, if it was a matter of me doing this to help the idea of sustainability, um, say in a city, um, I think a composting system would probably be the best way to do it um, because it would provide that service to these people. And if you think of even a, a town, you know, 5,000 people, those 5,000 people are eating three times a day and they're producing that many pounds of food waste, uh, which has a huge impact in terms of the amount of methane that's being produced. So if you can offset that much organic waste from producing methane, you can make a pretty significant impact in terms of the environment. Um, it would also be a way that's socially tied into uh, for, for people to be aware of and they're actively uh, 
involved in it. Um, so that would be, I think, the best way to to spread the the knowledge of, of sustainability um, and the ability to be more sustainable. Uh, aside from that, maybe maybe making a small farm, but I think that that would have potentially less of an impact because you'd still have to teach people about eating vegetables and changing their diets and buying locally. Whereas the composting system would be a service that you provide them that would be of minimal, it would take very little change of their actual day to day. Um, but they could, they could very directly see the impact. Right. I think that that's actually really a key, a key point is how do you, how do you quantify the impact? I think we're dealing with things that are quite abstract, like the, the, the in, inevitable demise of the earth because of greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. we want to call it. It's, it's just, uh, it's hard to know that what I'm doing right now, which is eating this uh, candy bar that's been wrapped up, mm-hmm. is, is going to kill a polar bear, bear somewhere, right? Oh, that's yeah. The idea. <laughs> how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you quantify things like this in a more effective way? Because I think that's been one of the biggest failures. Yeah, it's the, the lack of information, right? It's, um, it's out of sight, out of mind, which has been a key, key motto for this country. Um, for, for many things. So the way to quantify it is it's a hard thing to do. And it's actually what I'm um, doing a little bit of here or learning how to do, uh, doing a master's. It's using tools and uh, research um, methods, you know, using sensors and calculating data, gathering data over large spans of time, doing time series analysis on this data um, and actually quantifying all of the net benefits of whatever you do. If you do implement a composting system and uh, you want to see the actual net benefit, you could start measuring or have data from say a landfill, the local landfill, uh, from the amount of methane that is produced um, over a year or over multiple years, and then compare it to the amount of methane that's produced in the following years. You could weigh all of the trucks of, uh, the waste management trucks that are actually being dumped into landfills, which I think is already done, and compare that to the previous years before the composting system was set up. And of course, there's going to be noise in that data, which is going to be other factors that are affecting those changes that might not be the food or the organic matter, but there's going to be some frequency in that data, some actual change that is caused by this composting system. So that would be definitely a way to quantify it. The other issue is now that you have all of this data, how do you translate it? How do you frame it in a way that you can tell people about it and they can understand it? They can understand what it means. Um, And I think that that's a huge disconnect between the scientific community and the non-scientific community or the people that are not as studied or learned in those arts. It's the relay of that information you might be able to find some of these scholarly articles that are talking about these systems online for free. You probably won't because they'll ask you for a membership or to be allied with an institution or ask you to pay hundreds of dollars to read an article. And even if you get access to it, it's written in a way that you're not going to understand, or you might not understand. There's a lot of equations, a lot of terminology, a lot of lingo. So I think that's actually a wonderful thing that my design background helps me with in this field. It's translating that information into a way that people can understand it 
you make a pretty graphic, you make something that's beautiful or ugly, and you get people to react and you pique their interest. Instead of having a page long essay that describes how A goes into B, you have a graphic that very easily shows A becoming B. Um, so there's, there's a lot of key ways of, of doing that, which is a huge um, area of why design has been so successful in the, in the recent years. Um, but that's, I think, between the scientific community and society is a pretty underdeveloped area that um, I think really needs that change. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think there are a lot of very interesting things that you can do with data, especially now because of the new machinery that we've developed. But yeah. it's still a matter of consuming that data and actually drawing con conclusions from the data. Like, right. One thing that my mind comes to of someone who's done it very well is Spotify. Right. Yeah. If you have, I mean, it's, it's funny, but Spotify is a very, very highly sophisticated predictable, uh, sorry, uh, suggest suggestion engine. Uh, they, they want to predict your preferences and then suggest things mm -hmm. to you. Right. And right. they have this data from everything that you listen to throughout the years. And at the end of the year, which just happened, I mean, it's almost here. They give you this, this page, I guess it's like seven or eight slides here is the song that you listen to the most. You listen to it this many times. You listen to a podcast for 3000 minutes this year. Uh, right. Here are the top five songs. And it's all presented in a very consumable way, even mm -hmm. though the techniques that they use to generate this were probably pretty sophisticated. It, I mean, in this case, they're probably averages, which is, you know, for what it's <laughs> But it doesn't matter. It right. still gives me an insight onto things that I didn't even consider. Right. Oh, like number four of my top five is something I forgot about or, yeah. or something like that. So I think I think we're slowly getting to a point where these recommendation systems have infiltrated our lives. I'll use the word infiltrated because that really is the way. So we're used yeah. to seeing we're used to seeing this data. Right. We're, mm -hmm. sorry, we're not used to seeing the data, but we're used to seeing the products of the data. And now you kind of want to show people the underside, like what's going on underneath, but in a still in a still an approachable kind of way. So you mentioned time series, right? That's mm -hmm. very important for a lot of things. But how do, how do you tell someone what a time series means and how to interpret it without giving them a, a one hour lecture on, on like the sophisticated techniques, right? And then this is a question. So like, mm -hmm. how would you go about that with, with your with your culmination of these these skills? Well, I think what you're saying that Spotify does, it's, it's definitely a way to do it. It's, it's boiling down all of this data, all of, all of these individual points that have happened across an entire year and telling you in one single block, you know, this is this, this is the song you listen to the most, et cetera. Um, so if you do that, but you maybe scale it down instead of every year, it's every month, or then you scale that down a little more every, every week you can, you can introduce people into the broad concept and start to specify and specify a little bit more. And that might be an easier way of, of getting them to understand that way. And that's, um, I think an excellent way of teaching people just in general, anyways, say calculus, you know, you tell people what calculus can do and, and you kind of give them the broad scopes, you break it up into algebra and geometry, and then you get into the more complex concepts. But unless you do it that way, if you just want to tell someone that, uh, they need to integrate something or, or uh, derive something right now or an equation. They, they don't have the basis, right? So you need to build that basis, that foundation. Um, and I think things like Spotify or YouTube, Google 
are doing really good because they are data uh, companies. And that those results of that big data collection, we are seeing. You go to Amazon and it's recommending what you can buy next based on what you've purchased now. Um, so people are beginning to understand that there are patterns or certain directions that they, they align themselves with. Um, and all of that is based off of all the decisions and things that they've made. Um, so I think perhaps now for, for us that are more digitally adapted, maybe not the, the older folks that might not be attached to Spotify and listening to music on Spotify, they still have their record player, their CDs, um, they, they might not understand it, but us, um, we, we definitely get it. And now, especially that coding has just become a much more common language. People code, young people code now, uh, which is something that just came about recently. Um, and that's dealing with data, that's dealing with computer language. Um, then it becomes that much more common. People start to understand uh, time series um, because they're dealing with it. And it's, it's just become more broadly known about or accepted. Uh, just like when, I don't know, chefs uh, 50 years ago weren't a huge thing. People, some people studied to be chefs. Other people were just like, yeah, they're the people that cook in the kitchen. But now chefs are celebrities. And that's because they've become more, um, more filmed. They've become, you, you can see them now. And you can see the effort that goes into the plates that they're creating. Now they're celebrity chefs and they're touring the world. People want to listen to them because they want to know about this food that they've never tried. In case they ever go there, they can try that food, right? If, if you treat data in that way, people becomes more aware of it and all of a sudden becomes popular. People want to, to, to access that data to understand their communities, their society, their own behavior then you can, you can make a hero out of it because you can gain a lot of knowledge from it. I agree. And I think personally, that's something I want to know about myself is are there trends that I'm kind of blind to that, I, that I'm you know, sub subject to? Yeah. Right? Wouldn't that it's, be fascinating? I feel like, I feel like especially with, with the composting thing, for example, mm -hmm. if, I, if someone came to me and say, said, you should compost, it's going to save the earth. I would be like, you probably, I'm not going to do it. But if you, if you came to me with a nice representation, and I'm talking like very visual, a visual representation of what it could do for me. That, and that's, that's like the real key here. It's what it can do for me, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you, have, you have this chart. Say it's like a really nice chart. That it, it can interact with me and say that, okay, here's the upfront cost. But over the course of two months, this is what happened. Over the course of six months, this is what will happen. Here's how I'm gonna let you track it. Uh, this is a representation of the total weight in food, uh, in, in trucks that are taking away waste. You're gonna reduce it by this much. You're gonna increase fuel efficiency by this much. Here are tangible pieces of data that mean something to you. And in that way, it makes it much more real. And it's not fear mongering, right? It's like, right. this is something that you're doing that's quite productive and I have a bit of efficacy now. Whereas right now it's this abstract concept that, okay, maybe it will, but I don't trust the, the, I don't trust McDonald's enough to not outdo the amount I save. You know what I mean? True. True. Uh, and, and you're right in, in terms of doubting whether it would have an impact because it might not. Uh, a lot of the issues are actually caused by those huge companies, but 
if you do have a way of, of showing people that impact and how if you compound it, it really adds up to something, then you really could affect change because people think about it and they, they, they know that it's going to make a change. Like voting. Um, a lot of people didn't think voting mattered. It's like, oh, it's one vote. What's it going to matter? And then a couple of presidents have won due to a couple thousand votes. Those couple thousand people that didn't vote will start thinking, oh, my vote could have counted, you know? Um, so little things like that. Um, if you can make it really easy for people to understand their actual benefit from composting, then yeah. But you need the education, right? You need, you need those systems set up, that funding existing to, to build those resources to push for it, for, for composting. That actually reminds me of um, uh, blood donation companies like Red Cross. Um, I, I donated blood a couple times and their app changed. It had this like track your blood uh, thing, which I thought was really weird, but it actually uh, tracked the blood donation that you gave and where it ended up going to around the country and who specifically it went to, um, which is really strange, but also it makes you think, oh, wait a second, this actually did something. It didn't just go into a blood bank and disappear or some drag, you know, some vampire that runs uh, Red Cross drank it. Um, it actually benefited this specific person and they, um, they wouldn't have gotten that without me. Uh, so if you can show that with composting or with anything, really, that actual impact, but it has to be somewhat personalized to you or personalized to you, right? Because not everyone is going to see the benefits that uh, you would see, or uh, they might see different benefits. So if you live in an apartment, you might not see the, uh, the green space around your house in that much, you know, that much uh, as you would if you lived in the suburbs. So that compost might not be uh, something that you can give to your garden to actually give that result. You might have to see it in a different way. Um, but I think that's, that would be huge. Um, and that, that goes right back to education. It's the more we tell people about these systems, the easier um, it'll be for them to, to consider them as something that they can do in their day to day. Uh, just like with toothpaste. I didn't know that toothpaste bottles weren't recyclable. Heck, I didn't know that styrofoam is recyclable. It just isn't recycled because of the pound per, for like the monetary, uh, the actual value that you gain per pound. You need huge volumes of styrofoam to gain, to, to like melt down to a small amount of sludge. And that's not something that you can really get much from, but you can recycle it. It's just that you don't because there's not enough of a benefit or a monetary incentive to do it. Um, toothpaste bottles, I had no idea, but now that I do, or that I, that I'm not going to buy another toothpaste bottle because I know that it's going to be waste in the end that can't be done anything with. Um, so yeah, it's just education, man. It's, it's really, it's crazy. Right. I, and I totally agree. I think it's like, again, I didn't know this about toothpaste. I didn't know this about styrofoam. These are things I'm learning right, right now. And, uh, here, here's something that's quite interesting and quite actually, I think it's very, it's very optimistic. We, I believe we, as like the, the figurative we, came to this conclusion that we need to be more aware of what we're doing to the planet. We don't know mm -hmm. how to do it necessarily, but we, there is a shift that, oh crap, there are things that are happening that aren't really that normal, that we should, we should, we should be a bit more aware. And we're going to do things that might not be really guided very well to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And 
the bridge between that concept of we need to do something and having real impact is, I believe, the, 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 this, this thing that you're talking about, the, the intelligent design of data to give you a sense of exactly what kind of impact you're having. Because now it's no longer yeah. an abstraction. It's, it's, it's a real sort of almost gamified thing that you could do, right? And then it gives you direction. Yeah. So now you can be very, you can be very intentional about the, the activities that you're participating in where it's like, oh, okay, I bought this thing from Amazon. Uh, now it's incumbent upon Amazon to tell me and track uh, the, the impact that this thing had in, I don't know, in some way, right? So in terms of, so say you bought toothpaste from Amazon, which I'm guessing a lot of people do. It'll keep track yeah. of all of those things that you did buy and show you the impact and the impact that that's gonna have in terms of waste. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I think, yeah, you're definitely getting on on something really important there is, uh, say hippies have been talking about these things since the 60s or 70s. They've been saying, you know, you gotta be good to the earth, man. You gotta drink less or do whatever. But there is actual quantifiable data that's backing a lot of those concepts up. Some of those concepts were crazy, but some of those concepts are actually based on fact. They just didn't know how to tell you these facts or this, they didn't have the data to back it up. Um, but now that we have the, the qualitative data and the quantitative data, you can, you can get a lot of people on board because there is logic behind it, but it also feels good, you know? Right. When you do something that's good for the earth, that's good for people around you, and it's cheaper than the alternative, or it's gonna benefit you in some way, you feel really good because there's no loss. You're not feeling a little bit bad because you know that it's a little bit bad. You feel good because you know that it's good. And that's fantastic. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think it's very interesting because that's, that's part of what it means to be a community. Yeah. Right? The reason why a decentralized farm might work is because you have a community. Right? Yeah. You have a community that supports it. A reason why an effective global effort to make sure that we're going to do what's right for the world is because we put, we're, we're putting names, we're putting names and faces to, to our, to our um, I guess, our actions. Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. And, and the, 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 the slight disconnect still is what you were saying, which is very important that these are long-term changes and there is noise. So having a causal link, determining a causal link is very difficult. Right. So what do you, what do, you do about that, right? Because we don't want to wait six months before telling somebody that they did something that was impactful. Right. It's, I think that's where you just have to base it off of existing data. So we, we know that there is a certain amount of, say, trash that's out floating in the oceans. We know that a certain amount of trash ends up in a lot of uh, Southern Asia and is polluting a lot of communities or is just shipped there because it's not recycled here. Um, and you can see what that trash is. You know, you can see some of them are Coca-Cola bottles from the 80s or 90s. You can see the specific waste products that are being uh, found in these places. So that's an easy way to trace back. It's just the actual company, the actual manufacturers, right? Um, and if you are say supporting a manufacturer and a lot of that waste is of that particular company, then you know that that company causing that. So you try to support them less or you push for change in that company. Um, 
there's this uh, fund, it's called the Closed Loop Fund, which was actually created by a lot of these very big companies like LG and Coca-Cola and Nike, that they, they provided a, a lot of su- a really large sum of money to this fund to then be provided to cities, to uh, states, to communities, to, for the sole purpose of creating recycling systems and infrastructure. And these funds, which are you know, millions of dollars, are provided to these cities or these communities at 0% interest, um, depending on, on what you are, uh, the level of organization, or very low uh, interest rates. So it's, there's really no net loss if you decide to go for it, because you can just pay it off whatever you borrow. You don't have to pay off more. Um, and if you do that, you have the capital in place to build these systems and make them realities. You don't have to worry about investors because the investor is there and you'll pay it off as long as you're successful, however long it takes. Um, so it's really, really great that these systems exist, right? To, to cause um, this change. Um, so that gap is becoming smaller um, because there's systems in place now. There's people that are educated and there's the means of doing it. Right. And I think on top of all that, all you really need is a laptop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of, for a lot of, at least uh, the information, all you information need is a laptop. Aspect. Yeah. It's everywhere. Right. And you can run a company like that if it's completely automated from a laptop, uh, which is amazing. Uh, how, how all of this is just like the computer is such a powerful tool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all, it's all, it's so much of it is education based, which is crazy. Um, so why, why all these things are, are, are effortful. Everything that you've said, everything that you've sort of thought about, right, the way you lead your life is quite effortful. It would be easier not to do it. So what, in that, in, at least in the beginning, I'll say. Sure. What, what compels you? What compels you to do these things? Well, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question because from my perspective, it actually reduces the amount of effort that I have to input um, because I'm looking at it long-term, right? If, if I, I it just, it's also subjective. So I really hate smelly trash. <laughs> so for me, taking out a big pile or a big bag of really rancid trash that's going to break along the way is really an awful experience uh, for me. So me not having to worry about that, to deal with that is a huge plus, right? So that's less effort on my part because I'm not stressing out about that moment coming around. Um, I have to take out the trash less because I'm composting. Um, so it's, it's a net gain for me or my perspective because I, I don't have to do these uncomfortable or annoying things. And stress, as difficult as it is to quantify, is real. And it does have a negative impact on your body. So not having to do these things and not having to worry about the negative impact that I am having, because I, that is a big factor in my stress level, is constantly worrying about what I'm doing and how it's affecting the, the world around me. Not having those stressors in place means that I'm happier and that I'm not you know, as down as I would be otherwise. So perhaps uh, for the person that is not yet accustomed to how these routines work, it might be some effort to change, but every change is going to be some effort. 
um, in the end, you might benefit from it. Like the person that first stopped wearing or riding a horse and started riding a car, driving a car, they might've thought, well, you know, I'm used to driving or, or riding my horse and giving them hay and picking up their shit. Um, but then they got used to driving a car and like, why would I ever pick up horse shit again? I don't want to do that. Um, they, that change from, from the horse to the car might seem uncomfortable and might be uncomfortable, but in the end, they might be a lot of benefits. So to me, making the effort of composting and, and those little actions of like putting the organic matter here and the other stuff there um, reduces that smelly trash possibility. And that's a great, great thing in my eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's got to get rid of that smell. <laughs> I hate it, man. I, I, I remember one time I, I left uh, my house for a couple weeks and I came back and my trash was filled with fruit flies. So now I had to do this thing where I had to figure out how to get rid of all these fruit flies. So I had to look up like fruit fly traps and build a couple of them. And then I had to wait five days for all of those suckers to be gone. And every time I went downstairs, every time I was in the kitchen, they were in my eyes, they were in my face. I was swatting at them everywhere. Um, it's really uncomfortable and it feels gross. So I didn't have to do that uh, after I, I started doing this. And that was a great stress that I didn't have to worry about. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. Uh, th this, this sort of uh, long-term scope, I don't find it to be very common. No, no, it's, it's hard to think long-term um, mm. because you have to think about what your actions do, um, what it all results in in the end. Uh, and it's definitely a hard thing to, to teach people. Um, How do you but, think you learned it? Or, or were you always this way? I may have been a little bit this way um, all my life, but uh, I think it's definitely something that was taught to me. Uh, reading a lot of books, you know, you can see the development of the, of the character in a really short amount of time that in the book might be years or months. So you can see how whatever decisions they made impacted them over the, the you know, the length of time. Um, so that was definitely a, a part of it. Um, say the Count of Monte Cristo, you know, the buildup to the very end. Um, but it's also me taking classes in uh, sustainability and those specific long-term effects of something like waste being explained to me in detail really opened my eyes to all of this. Um, I read this book called Cradle to Cradle, which is definitely one of my favorite books that um, that class actually um, told me to read. And it talks about linear economies and circular economies in terms of what we live in right now, it's a linear economy. We produce a lot of stuff and we just send it all straight to the landfill. Whereas in a circular economy, you close the loop. All the stuff that would go to landfill otherwise is recycled and put back into the economy. And you create this closed loop of material, which is actually a net gain for us if you look at it in that way. So it's or not that you have to look at it in that way, that you actually study the actual effects of that kind of cir circular economy rather than not. Um, being educated about it. So once I became aware about those things, I think I started to question everything in my life. Uh, I learned about fast fashion and how clothes are produced by companies in a certain way or in certain places. So by buying, say, that $5 shirt from the place that's selling or that has it on sale right now, some of those funds are actually going to go to that company that is 
um, affecting or, or creating fast fashion, which is just uh, producing huge amounts of weight of, of wasted clothing that are being dumped in uh, third world countries. So if you say buy an $8 shirt for a company or a $12 shirt for a company that isn't doing that, you might think, well, this shirt costs more than that one. So that one's cheaper and I should just get that one. But this one um, won't be supporting that system. And that has potentially a monetary effect or a monetary value for, for people. For some people it does. Um, but if it doesn't, it at least has that ecological aspect, right? Where you're thinking, well, this company is going to get less funding. Uh, this other company is going to get more funding, which means they can grow and provide their products at a cheaper price because again, economies of scale, but they're going to be use, utilizing those systems that are sustainable. Um, so it's, it's all of that. It's, it's how little changes can grow into big things. And with uh, this cradle to cradle idea, this uh, company, it's a chemist and an architect, I believe they are an engineer. They um, worked together to create this concept where you have organic you have the organic uh, cycle or the organic loop, organic materials, and then you have the technical materials. So organic being everything, um, you know, food-wise, technical being plastics, metals, glass, all those things. If you can separate them, you can really use them well um, and recycle them into the system. Something as simple as a 50% uh, polyethylene uh, t-shirt and 50% uh, cotton t-shirt. So it's 50-50. If that shirt was to be recycled, you can't um, because that cotton is going to uh, sully all of that plastic. You can't just melt it down because now there's organic matter that's making it dirty and you okay. can't compost it because that plastic isn't going to decompose. But if you have 100% cotton t-shirts and 100% polyethylene t-shirts, you can recycle the polyethylene t-shirt and you can compost the organic or the cotton t-shirt. So dividing those two realms and making things, uh, consciously use one realm of material so that they can be uh, separated and reused in a certain way uh, makes it a lot easier to then reuse those materials and you don't have that unnecessary waste. It's interesting that you put it that way because the way I see it is things become more and more integrated and the lines keep getting more and more blurred. Yeah. I don't know. So. It just seem, it seems like uh, the, the, the latest material is going to be some really intense combination of organic and inorganic material. Yeah, that's probably, oh, that's like, uh, this is probably going to benefit us in the most, it's going to be the cheapest to manufacture because we can uh, basically fill in the, I don't know. I actually don't have any real foundation for saying what I'm saying, but it just no. seems like that's the way things are headed. <laughs> I think you're, you're absolutely right. And plastics have been exactly that it's cheaper to manufacture and it's, uh, some plastics are not recyclable, but they're really cheap to produce. So it definitely is exactly that. Um, but when, uh, the, the, I guess the last bit of the story of what this company did is they, they went to a, a textile manufacturer that actually made shirts and they showed them all these things. And they talked to them about their actual chemicals that they used. This company had a room that was for hazardous waste or for the, the, the hazardous materials that they were using to dye their shirts. Um, the company or this, this uh, manufacturing plant was on a river, so it was uh, absorbing or taking in river for their manufacturing and then outputting water. Um, and they helped this company change from using all these toxic chemicals into uh, products that were non-toxic, um, so non-hazardous, 
processes that were cradle to cradle or under this ideology. And in the end, this manufacturing plant was able to remove that room that was used for hazardous chemicals and turn it into say a daycare where the people, the employees of that company could actually like bring their kids. And so they had a communal space all of a sudden that they didn't have otherwise. These gloves and this uh, hazardous suits that they had to wear, they didn't have to anymore because the chemicals that they were using were non-toxic. And the water that was actually being uh, output from the factory was cleaner than the river that was coming in. Um, so they were cleaning the water instead of dirtying it. And if those people live in that neighborhood, they're going to see that impact immediately, right? They're going to see the river is less dirty. There's more fish. It's less smelly. And all of their parks are going to be healthier and uh, all these things. They are also happier because they're not exposed to these hazardous wastes. So um, there's definitely a way of, of making these things happen. And uh, it just takes the actual effort of, of changing them, right? Right. And it seems like that's the recurring theme here is maybe most of the th these things over the long term are net beneficial. Mm -hmm. But that initial phase of either convincing, compelling, maybe economically or even just like socially, you yeah. don't make the change. Yeah, it really and, is. It's that. Uh, and heck, even, even in physics, like static friction versus kinetic friction, you need a lot more force to move something that's static versus to move something that's moving. So getting people to move from where they are and they're very happily stationed where they are and the way they do things to change, it's, it's a lot of effort. But once you can get over that hump, and I think that energy hump, like the, the barrier of entry um, gets lower and lower. The more people are educated about these things, the more systems are in place, the more variety and options they have um, for, for all these systems, for all these ideas, the energy barrier gets lower and people are more willing to move because all of a sudden the effort is less. Do you think the, the pandemic has lowered that hump for anything or for many things? Ooh, I, th I know it definitely has. Um, it has to have. I think that people perhaps pre-pandemic, their houses weren't necessarily places that they cared to design in a way that was comfortable to work in, right? It was just wherever I came home from or to after work, I just wanted to be as comfortable as possible, um, maybe non-productive. Uh, maybe it didn't really matter because they spent most of their time outside their home. So their house was not something that was necessarily comfortable to be in because it was just a place to sleep and eat and then you go to work. But now if you're working uh, from home, you have to be a bit more conscious about what your home space looks like. Uh, is it comfortable? And a lot of people, maybe it's just our generation, but they like to put plants inside their house because it makes it feel better. Uh, it cleans your air to it, you know, gives you oxygen during the day. Um, that green light that's reflected off the plants is again, beneficial to your mental health and your, your actual physical uh, well-being. Um, and you have to think a little bit more about how you're creating these spaces so that they can be productive and can be comfortable. Um, and in that, it's also caused people to stay at home more and perhaps be happier because they're not commuting. Um, so it definitely has to have had an impact because now they're thinking, well, maybe I don't need to drive to work. Maybe I can just stay at home, which is then just fueling this lack of use of gas and fewer miles being driven. Then they have to spend less money repairing their cars because they're getting less miles on it 
per, per month. So their cars are lasting longer. So it's all these things are, are net benefits that you might not think about, but maybe a couple months later, a couple years later, you're like, oh, wait a second. I didn't have to change my car's oil 12 times this year. I only did it four times. And that's however many dollars that I saved. So the thing that comes to mind when you say that is you'd have to remind people. I feel like those things that go unnoticed that are really nice are the easiest things to go unnoticed, right? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, out of sight, out of mind. But yeah. they're, they're, I mean, there's, there's a fine balance to strike between being invasive <laughs> with, with collecting that information and actually presenting that information. Because I see yeah. a utility to, to actually really showing that this very small thing that you did had this large of an impact. There is this, this recurring theme with very small changes over a long amount of time, you have exponential returns. Right? It seems just like some yeah. principle of, of nature. <laughs> yeah, and, no, that's uh, it, Again, it's just capturing that. It's just capturing that without infringing upon your, your rights to data. Which we, I mean, we, we seem like we don't really care about it anyway, right? I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use YouTube, I'm gonna use Google, I'm gonna use whatever it is and they're gonna take my data and that's fine. That's true. But, but even then, people are becoming more aware about it. Uh, some people are moving away from Facebook because they don't want that much shares, you know? Uh, so people are aware of it. And there's even a search engine that's supposedly better for, our, for the earth than Google. It's called Ecosia. Okay. Um, and apparently it counts the amount of searches that you've done on that web, uh, web engine. And it says that forever, however many thousand searches, they'll plant one tree or it equates to one tree. Um, so they've, they've tried to do that a little bit where they're quantifying the amount of time that you're spending online, the amount of hours that you're spending on a, a search engine, which is actually giving them funds, right? Because they're using, uh, they're, they're cataloging all that time as you know, customer time or whatever. Um, so you're taking it away from someone like Google that isn't necessarily causing or doing that much good. You're giving it to Ecosia. And now you have a quantifiable gain or benefit that you're given. Uh, your searches might be a, a bit more sparse than what Google can provide. Um, maybe a little bit more, more specified because they don't have all the people working with them. But you know that you planted X amount of trees by the end of the year and you can feel good about that. It's hard to do that with everything though, right? Mm. Um, and that's, I think what you're getting at. It's, it's almost this, um, we get into this sci-fi universe of, of robots everywhere telling you or advertisement popping up. It's like, good job on drinking less coffee or good job on jogging. And that becomes, I don't know, to me, like a, a Black Mirror episode of not really pretty. Um, uh, but there's, there's some ways of doing it. And, and people are actively adding those systems into their lives today with Fitbits that are counting however many steps they've made, um, how long they've walked, what their heart rate is. They, they want that data. Even if it isn't data that they think they might want, um, they might want it eventually. Uh, people before Fitbits didn't think, oh, I maybe should monitor my heart rate because it was too hard to do, but now this thing does it for them. Now they have that data, they can start using it to affect change in their day-to-day -day lives. They might not know about data like waste or composting, but the moment they're aware that they can have that data, they might want it. And having that data might then affect change. 
but it's it's a very transitory moment that we're living in because this data is becoming more available to us. These technologies are being created that use this data and that we can then use to read that data for ourselves. Um, so now that we're becoming much more aware and, and it's becoming normalized, um, now it can just spread from here, right? The first phone, the first company that provided the first phone, uh, it, was, it was a small pool of people that, that used them and uh, very few products that people could choose from, but then more phone companies added up or started to, to add in the products and now phones are everywhere. So if you can do that with these data systems, it can just slowly take place and then spread like crazy. Right. It's overcome the barrier <laughs> as it were. I, I, yeah, I, overcome I, the barrier, it's just time. I wanna, I wanna stick on something here really quick. So going into the like sort of black mirror realm of thinking. Oh yeah. Something that I think about sometimes is Okay, you, you mentioned this before where in Venice, people are staying home more, the rivers are getting cleaner, the mm-hmm. animals are coming back. One trend that we see is the sort of increase in re- real, the realisticness of VR, right? Mm-hmm. The utility of VR, the encapsulation of our intention, attention to, to head, headsets, to, to, to devices, right? Yeah. We're, we're, we're getting most of the exploration that we need by sitting in one spot and having access to this giant network of information that's limitless. Yeah. So is, the, is that ultimately a silver lining for, for uh, Mother Earth, right? That we don't have to go anywhere anymore. We can just stay within a six by six foot area, <laughs> put on our headsets, do everything we need to do, maybe inject ourselves with some nutrition while, <laughs> while the earth does its thing. Is that, is that, a, is that where we're headed? Matrix level-esque? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's definitely, I think, a potential future. Uh, maybe we are all in the matrix at the moment and our way of like getting to the reality is just by recreating that in, in this illusion. Um, but I think that's definitely like VR, AR, that's a huge possible gain for uh, for humanity uh, for the world because actually tom's shoes uh did just that they they used vr to place people in the communities that they were going to and providing shoes this is something that tom's did if you bought a shoe for them or from them they would give a pair of shoes free to someone else whether it was ethical logical who knows but they filmed those moments where they took those shoes to these communities, to these kids and gave them to them so that you as a consumer were then brought into that action and you were exposed to those moments of, of joy, of ecstasy that these children had, um, the, the moments that maybe brought tears to the people that actually started the company. Now you're a part of it. So you can feel the actual gain or the benefit that you're providing these people. And if you can do that with everything, if you can show people that have never even thought of what a landfill looks like or been to a landfill, what a landfill is, you know, you can expose them and then they can just do it sitting on their chair. Now they're aware of that. If you can show them what the big tra- trash patch, plastic patch in the oceans look like, and you can put them inside this system and see the animals and all the plastic. Now they can feel what it's like to be there and they can see what, how, awful it would be um 
and that goes into the whole globalization, right? The, the more globalized we become, the more information there is everywhere, the more aware of everything that's going on in the world around us uh, we are, the more we can think about our actions. Uh, and VR is an excellent tool because even today where we have video chats, video chats only do so much. They are not enough to really be somewhere. But if you have uh, VR and you can have, say you can't go and visit your family uh, during the holidays, but you have a VR system, it allows you to be in your room or in, in your house and your, wherever your family is um, a little bit more and maybe even interact. Maybe it has a, um, a projector that shows your face and moves around. So now you can, you can see people that are running around and moving around. They don't have to come to you, but you can even like go to them. Uh, it makes, makes it that much more real. And uh, it can bridge a lot of gaps of, of missing being home or not knowing where a specific place is or what it looks like or the impact that's being had there. And it just makes it that much easier for people to know um, the impact that their, their change can make. Um, but even on another in, uh, level of impact, if people are visiting places virtually, you know, they don't care about what it looks like to climb Mount Everest because there is a VR um, recording of the top of Mount Everest, then fewer people are making that climb and we're having fewer people die because they're not prepared to make that climb. <laughs> or fewer people are just flying in general, which is reducing the carbon footprint because they are not interested as, uh, into traveling to those crazy remote places that they see in adventure movies as being like the Mecca of the Meccas because they've seen it. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of different ways that it could be beneficial. Right. And it just seems like this all depends on the proper, I guess, implementation mm -hmm. of what is available through VR, right? It depends yeah. what we focus on. Are we going to create an artificial world? Or are we going to recreate the world that we already exist in to be able yeah. to experience those things, make those things very real? And uh, I think that's a very big responsibility. True. It's, it's huge. Um, and that's not a, a responsibility that any one person or any one entity, I think, can take on. It, it's something that has to be spread out because there are so many aspects to it, right? So even the book, uh, Ready Player One, uh, talks about it. It's about this, this VR world that uh, can bridge or can bring a community together from people that are like way spread out around the world, which is one uh, thing that the internet did a long time ago. Um, but if they can escape into these virtual realms that are artificial, um, maybe that's just enough of a, an escape that they need from their day-to-day -day confined spaces or whatever uh, situation that they live in that gives them joy or it gives them a sense of community or in COVID times as we are, pandemic times, allows you to interact with people in a safe way. Um, so it does, it can definitely do a lot of good emotionally, physically, in every way. In every way, yeah, and mostly every way. You can it see does. that green light that's coming off the plants and then just shoot it directly into your eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's how they did the study. There are labs doing this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's, there's definitely some sense of perhaps humanity that will be lost, right? Um, maybe our, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, um, if you showed them how we interact now, they, they wouldn't understand. They would say that there's... You know, there's a, an emotion that's, that's lost when you're not sitting in front of the person. You can't actually see them eye to eye. You're just looking at the screen. Um, you can't share a beer uh, with someone uh, 
stuff like that is definitely lost perhaps, but I think other things are gained that are perhaps more beneficial. Here's a question. Do you, do you think it's only lost because you knew you used to be able to do it? Ooh, uh, I think, yeah, it's gotta be right. And maybe the, uh, the actual emotional aspect is definitely due to that. It's say you've only ever eaten steaks your entire life. You know, you've really had a luxurious life and now that steak is taken away. You're going to miss that steak depending on whatever you're eating now. But if you never had that steak to begin with, you're not going to miss it. Uh, so that's, that's a huge part of it. It's got to be. But you might still be aware of what steaks are, even if you've never had them. Right? right. Um, but that emotional aspect isn't there. If, if you've never interacted with someone face to face, you might not realize what you're missing uh, on or like grabbing someone's hand, you know, holding hands with your significant other. That's a, that's a, a thing that it's hard to explain and it's hard to, to, um, to give people the experience of if they've never had it. But once you've had it, you might not want to let it go, you know? Exactly. I think that's a very, very, very great point because what if you never have that and your equivalent nostalgic feeling is having some haptic feedback on your hand, right? Yeah. That's your sense of nostalgia, right? The interface is identical. It doesn't matter. This is what you've experienced. And this was the underlying experience that dictated what you felt. Like who's to say that isn't equally as valid as somebody, you know, touching or holding their partner's hand for the first time. That's actually super true. And that uh, um, also builds into this idea of what, what our interests are, what our likes and dislikes are and what they're based off of. So say the, the foods that you like and that you enjoy, uh, a lot of that is, yes, some of it is based on genetics. Some people think cilantro tastes like soap. Some people think ginger tastes like soap. Um, but a big part of it is based on your memories. It's what you ate as a kid, what moments were uh, good that you remembered and what food or smells were associated with that. That builds your, your likes and your dislikes. Say you had a lot of peanut butter and you had a bite that was really bad and you felt sick for a week. You're going to remember that you were sick because of that peanut butter and you might not like peanut butter anymore. But um, it's, it's so much of it is based on, on memories, right? So if that feeling of the, the haptic feedback from some glove uh, is the way that you've only ever experienced holding hands, that might become your baseline. And that's what you crave, exactly what you're saying. Um, so that might then affect what future generations look for. Um, and we might have that human to machine interface um, be a lot more prevalent because that human to human interface is not a thing that's, uh, that people have nostalgia for. Like, Say eating anchovies. I think that's a that's a really maybe an old food, like an old person food. They like eating anchovies because they're really smelly, and you know you give it to a, a five year old, and they're gonna think that's gross. Maybe not all five year olds, but you know. Um, but that nostalgia of like your dad or your grandfather ate anchovies, so you remember that smell from when they ate the anchovies. So then you try them because you were exposed to them. But if your family never ate those things, you might never have that nostalgia of like trying it. And if you never try it. It's not something that you potentially will ever try. And so that market, that thing will be lost. What, what do you think it is about those experiences that make them nostalgic? Is it part of, uh, you know, I will, you know, I was 
actually don't know. I wonder what it is. Like, what about smelling the anchovies when your parents were eating them when you were a kid? Is quote why is it so memorable? I think well, it's it's definitely more memorable. Um, it's I think there are a couple of studies have shown that smells attached to memories make memories last a lot longer than just sights. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it's just because it's linked to that moment in time. Uh, however, you felt those things strangely enough can traverse time as as memories and and those those endorphins that are released um, by remembering those things uh, could be significant enough to make them something that stays around you know if the thought of a freshly mown lawn is something that you really enjoyed because it meant summer was here then smelling lawns being mowed just reminds you of like, oh, summer is here. It, it's, it's like uh, we've, we're training ourselves, right? You ring a bell and a dog uh, and you give them food, that bell all of a sudden means food. Uh, you mow a lawn and that means the, the weather's warm and you enjoy the warm weather, then you like the smell of uh, load mo- uh, mowed lawns. So maybe, maybe that's actually a way that we can, we can customize uh, society. To, to change the way that uh, the, the things that actually give them enjoyment or pleasure or the things, the memories that they have attached to, to certain smells to change them or mold them in a way that would be beneficial for society, for humanity. I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> I think there needs to be an effort to develop smells associated with different experiences. Mm-hmm. That's a very active process. You need to be experiencing it when you experience the smell. Yeah. I mean, cops do it without smells right the sound the really annoying loud siren and the the flashing red and blue if you see flashing red and blue even if you don't hear the siren you're gonna think cops right if you hear the siren and you don't hear you don't see the lights you're gonna think cops or ambulance or whatever but if every time you were stopped by a cop it smelled rancid like you were saying you might be that much more inclined to not getting stopped by a cop (laughs) or every time you smell something rancid you're going to think about cops and maybe that's not a great thing but um that's definitely something that could happen yeah but i'm I'm thinking of it in in terms of like environmentally right there's this there's a very particular smell associated with going on a hike right Mm. or 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 smelling the flowers in the field whatever it is and if you develop the fondness for that smell at an early enough age, I believe you have a baseline level of appreciation for what it is you're experiencing. Yeah. And if, if that becomes absent, then you have no reason to want to protect it. You have no reason to want to save it. You're absolutely right. Um, I think the, the smell of, of the earth after a rainstorm or something, it's called petrichor, if I remember correctly, um, which I don't know how they came up with that term, but yeah. So how would you do that, right? How would you try to cement something like that positive memory associated with that smell into children to then grow and, and remember that and want to smell that again? Um, that's, whew, that's that, that ties into the whole cultural change, societal change. You have schools that do field trips, but instead of field trips to museums, they go to parks or you have enough expendable income provided to the majority of, of citizens to be able to take trips to places like the parks, or there is more parks available for them to just do this on an everyday basis. There's so many things that might uh, potentially be altered to make something like that more of a reality. But it's hard for, say, an inner city kid that is not around any parks to get that. 
because to them, every time they step outside, it's going to smell like cigarettes or diesel fuel or cars or whatever cities smell like. Um, but they're not going to have that park aspect. Maybe the people in New York that live around Central Park will, but the people that live in the other parts of New York that don't have Central Park, they might not. Um, so it really, it really is important that wherever you are, wherever you're living, that has a huge impact on um, your memories. You know, if, if it snows for you every winter, you're going to remember that um, in, in, when you're older. But if it doesn't snow when, you, when you're young, then you're not going to associate winters with, with snow. And you, like that white Christmas isn't going to be a thing for you. For me here in Florida, it was never that. It was me going on the beach because that's where we spent Christmas on the beach. And it was wonderful. You looked at the sunset over the ocean. You didn't worry about or care about building snowmen. You didn't worry about snowball fights or any of that stuff. Yeah, I think it's really what you're used to. I imagine a situation where in libraries, if those still exist, we have, uh, you put on your headset and you put on this little, maybe it's like a mask or something. Mm -hmm. And you go to a particular period, you go to a certain place and you just, it's a static image even, or maybe it's a static video mm -hmm. and you just inhale, you just smell it, right? I feel like that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Especially if you know, it's actually, uh, it's, it's, that's actually an experience that I've had already. Um, Disney, uh, in one of their rides, I can't remember which park, they actually created an experience like this. It was a 4D experience. They added the fourth dimension of smell, right? Um, and it was this thing, it was called Glide or something, where, which might've become an avatar thing now where you're actually riding the, the big uh, like reptile birds that they have in the movie. Um, where you're flying over a landscape and then you go over a, a citrus grove and they actually sprayed like citrus smell at you. And you were wearing these vertical or these uh, virtual reality goggles. So you could look around. So this experience added that dimension. And that's, I think a very real thing that's going to happen because why wouldn't it, right? right. Um, it, it, I think it ties really well with this idea of 3D printers. Um, where you can manufacture things at home. You don't have to have a manufacturing plant somewhere else. You could all of a sudden make 3D printers that can print food. Um, and if those chemicals, those products are already um, manufactured in a way for these printers, you can utilize them for things like virtual uh, reality goggles, VR goggles, where you have smells that are incorporated into this mask that can be combined at will to make different aromas for different situations. That's very cool. I imagine mm -hmm. being a child and that becomes your nostalgia. Yeah. I remember when I was flying on this reptile bird and I smelled the oranges or, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. You go to Disney and you were able to experience, say, Florida from above, which I think is what they were showing you. Um, so now Disney isn't just Mickey, it's, it's Florida. Um, so it's, it's, man, it has so, many, so much potential. And it reminds me a lot of uh, Big Hero 6 and what that movie does. Now, he's able to build a lot in his little garage, but that's, that's a reality that's pretty close to being here. Uh, we have these technologies available. They're just a little expensive, but they're there. And since they're there, they're only going to get cheaper. Right. Right. And that's where those market forces really help us out. Mm -hmm. Because again, you could say you have a 3D printer, you have the filament associated, you have a, you have a computer. There's, there's a whole lot you can do. <laughs> a lot, a whole lot. Um, and it's, it's built, say, say in the world of design, that's a huge aspect. When you want to build a new product, 
there's a lot of ergonomics that is hard to, to really encapsulate in a digital 3D model. So things like 3D printers that are able to create that three-dimensional form quickly, cheaply, and affordably, um, and really precisely too, is key to learning something like ergonomics and understanding the ergonomics. So you can, you can have more iterations of that specific form of that specific object, you know, versions that compound on each other because you have the tools to really learn from them and make a more successful thing in the end. Um, the same thing with even say food, if you had a 3D printer that can mix uh, uh, matter, mix different ingredients at different rates and just print individual sized portions of each individual thing in a very quantifiably measurable way, you can find the optimum recipe for something. You don't have to worry about whether this dish that you made was two tablespoons of salt instead of three, it can just give you different uh, small portions of those specific measurements, you know, scaled down until you get to the one that tastes the best. And it can be a function of your own taste buds. Yeah, absolutely. Everything can be, can be personalized to your taste buds. to maybe even how you're feeling that day. So all these technologies allow for personalization and customization, which is actually huge. Um, I think it was in the, the army in the 40s, 30s, 20s. I don't know when it was. They created the idea of um, one size fits all. And it started with uh, the cockpits of planes or cars or something where they averaged the dimensions of a huge line of people. And they made this like average human. And that's what so many of these measurements are based off of. So this average human had you know, X length arms and X length legs. And when they developed this vehicle that was fit for this human, it actually didn't fit anybody because right. nobody had those dimensions. Um, everybody had a variety of them. So now you had to make that one size fits all customizable where you can move the seat up and down. You can move it up, uh, back and forth and you could change the, the, the depth of the steering wheel and all these things to make it fit for everybody. And actually that made it a lot better in the end. You had a small helmet, a medium helmet, and a large helmet, not just one helmet that didn't fit this person and fit that person way too uh, little, and it didn't work for anybody. I could definitely see that going very poorly. Because oh, yeah. if, you, if you have some giant person, then they no longer fit by virtue of the fact that this is an average and it's smaller. Yeah. And how ridiculous would it look? They're wearing a, a you know a, an outfit that's two sizes too small. They, they can't move because they're going to break it. Every time they bend down, they, they uh, tear their ass, uh, the, the, pant, the pant jeans or whatever. Yeah. Um, there's so many things that can go wrong. Uh, so making those, those customizable dimensions, which is what these technologies are eventually leading to. You know, you, you have an issue in your house. You can just come up with a solution and print it um, and then solve that specific issue that may be only relevant to you. Um, it's making our lives, I think, a lot easier and a lot um, a lot more unique than they might have been otherwise. Um, perhaps 50 years ago, all houses looked exactly the same because everybody bought the same exact products because that's all there was. But now people have the means of producing things themselves, of, of choosing um, different avenues that they want to take their lives and that they want to their lives to look like in terms of what they use and what they um, build. Um, and that's really, really fascinating because the more diversity we're given in terms of everything, um, I think the more success. And that ties right back into farming. If you have a single monoculture 
where everybody does or all plans are, are planted in the exact same way in the exact same time, you have a lot of potential to fail. But if you have a lot of diversity in plants, you have um, this diversity in terms of uh, flora and, and uh, fauna, you have a lot uh, higher chances of success. And um, pathogens and, and insects don't have the ability to spread the same way societies. If everybody thinks in exactly one way, uh, then it's, it's hard to say, bring about change uh, for any specific aspect. But if there's a lot of pockets of people that think differently, then you have different pockets supporting different ideas. It's easier to bring about change or to have a sturdier society that is, is more, um, more resistant to, to decay or I guess to, to losing, um, to being unsuccessful in the end. If everybody in the country was shoemakers, we'd have a ton of shoes, but no one would know how to make computers. So we need shoemakers, we need computers, uh, people that, that program, all these things make us strong. That's, that's the whole point. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it's going to be very fascinating to walk into a house 30, 40 years from now and see what, what are the common things that, have, that you have, right? You, you have like uh, this, this, this screen that you're interacting with. It somehow serves as a computer. You have this 3D printer, which is super sophisticated. You can have a 3D scanner to easily scan whatever you need to print so it fits you, like this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Right, because I feel like what growing up, I would say before I went to high school, computers, not very common. Printers, not very common. Right. Right, it was just like, hey, I'm gonna go to the library maybe if I wanna use this computer, but I'm not gonna go to the library because that's so much work. I'm just yeah. going to go play outside and get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. And, and so many people had library cards back in the day. But now, who? I mean, a lot of people don't have library cards because you can just find things online. You can order books. That's how Amazon got its start. Um, yeah. So you don't need libraries. And you have computers, you have printers. I think it's very, it's very nice that all of this possibility exists. But I think there is some something to the paralysis of options, the paralysis of choice, right? You have the world at your fingertips and you decide to do nothing, right? Because yeah. You just, that's you're actually, overwhelmed. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's a, actually a huge issue that our society or our actual generation has is we have so many options that it's really hard to choose because you don't know, right? Uh, and that's, that's really funny because before people didn't have as many options in, in our societies and yet maybe they were happier because they didn't have to worry about whether their decision was right because, you know, the odds are it was either this or that. So that's okay. But with us, we have so many possibilities that now every time that we make a decision, and if it's not successful, we think, well, we could have done X, Y, Z, and so many other things that would have been successful. So we feel that much more of that sense of failing, right? Yeah. It's, so it's harder to make a decision. Infinite possibility and infinite regret. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's huge. Like our generation, I think, is uh, suffering from, from loneliness. Like it's a huge thing that so many people in our generation are suffering from. And yet, we have the easiest time to contact absolutely anybody. We can text them, we can email them, we can video message them, video chat with them. So we can connect with people across the world instantly. Whereas previous generations had to send cards and that was just written. So you didn't even see them. And yet we're lonely. I, I think it's very interesting though, because that probably has to do with the, 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 these humps, these barriers that we're talking about. I mm. think 
back then, even though you had to send the card, presumably you had this community close to you where you were interacting with people on day to day. So going to someone and asking them to talk was much easier. Whereas even though now we can do it, asking somebody for a video call, I guess before FaceTime was a huge thing, right? Like, oh, let's get on Skype and do this. And that's why I'm really excited that Zoom became a thing and that Zoom is becoming more and more accepted. It's because you're able to be in Florida and I'm in Texas, right? We can, yeah. we can have this conversation and it's for the most part, pretty seamless. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really wild um, to be honest. And you're probably right. Um, the, those people back in the day, they probably had closer knit societies or family groups and were maybe more spread out. And in that being more spread out, um, we're less socially tied or, or have smaller social groups near us because our groups are so spread out and, and that satisfies that need, right? You're in Texas. That means I have one fewer friend that I need to make here because I just have you and I can just chat with you whenever. But because you're not here present physically, I don't have that, that sense of like, oh, this person is here and that reduces loneliness. Um, it's, it's really an interesting thing, an interesting issue that's affecting our society or our generation. And I wonder how it's going to be remedied. I bet I'd be willing to speculate that part of it has to do with what we were talking about before with the nostalgia of holding your, holding your partner's hand. Oh yeah. We only feel lonely because our baseline level of what was togetherness is based off of being in person together. Interesting. It could be that. I think that would be very good if it were that because otherwise it's quite grim. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like Thanksgiving family dinner in 2007 whatever, right? I, I don't remember where I was, but I'm pretty, I have a pretty good idea that I was running around getting injured with my cousins or something, <laughs> right? Right. And in, in terms of not feeling lonely, part of not, whatever the opposite of loneliness is, mm-hmm. I, I felt that way based on those experiences. So yeah. the fact that those have become less and less, pre, less, and less prevalent and my definition has not been updated, makes me feel lonely when, as you said, I'm, I have this ability to access everybody. And I, for the most part, I still do, right? It, right. Just, it just makes it feel like you still are lonely. No, you're right. And, and maybe that's something that's going to change because our, you know, the kids that are young now, they are coming up with COVID and this is just a norm, normalcy to them. So they might not feel that loneliness uh, that we do. Which might make us say whenever we're old enough to, to be the people that are changing laws, to be as archaic to them as the current politicians are to us. It's like, why are they making these decisions that make no sense? Because to us, they make no sense because we didn't grow up around that. We don't have that nostalgia. No. But these younger kids, they, they don't, might not care at all, which is really, really interesting. Um, so does that mean that we're evolving into that? that realm of of being much more socially distant just naturally i think so and i think our generation specifically like i would say very early gen z and very late millennial mm-hmm. right we are in this we're part of sorry i guess we're currently experiencing the the huge part of the exponential like we have gone from computers nowhere to everybody's like in their phone and we were mostly consciously right. aware the whole time. And a lot of our definitions right. probably are not 
updating as fast as technology is increasing. That's true. That's true. Perhaps maybe not this next generation, but the generation after the generation of the the, the people brought up during COVID, they they don't even consider that to be a possibility, right? The whole being together. What is that about being in a grocery store? What is that about? (laughs) Right. Going to a shopping center. What? That's true. You didn't order all of your stuff from Amazon and it wasn't sent to you on a drone? Interacting with a cash register? Having to make small talk with them? What? Pedestrian. (laughs) Mundane. That is really fascinating. And I I mean, it's definitely different now because of all these technologies and how society is changing. But in the past, we have, I mean, there have been pandemics and epidemics and Black Plague and all these things have existed so I wonder how society changed for the people that lived through that. Kind of like, well, I guess a great example is the baby boomers, right? They, they were around during the war and then they were told, you got to have kids. We don't have enough people. So that whole generation just had tons and tons of kids. And uh, that was Gen X or uh, I think it was Gen X or uh, I can't remember what other generation. Maybe it was the, anyways. So now all those kids that were had are old now and all those old people are affecting um, social security and draining it dry. So we're not going to have any social security. So there's, it seems like a cycle, right? So that happened because of the, the war and then it came down and now we're kind of leveling off, but now there's COVID so that we're going onto another curve, another spike of change. And now we're then later on the repercussions of that change are going to be felt and we might level back out. So it's just this like constant, constant change due to these uh, situations and and it's quite interesting just to bring it back to your your personal like long-term view of of things it's interesting to know what forces are at play in your decisions that are only going to affect this time and they're very short-sighted forces right yeah right yeah perhaps perhaps the resistance to decentralization and the the being socially apart maybe that's that's a force that isn't really that well found right maybe the fact that we i I, not we but maybe the fact that i feel that kids should be playing together and not on their phone is a it's an ancient force that that shouldn't necessarily be taken too seriously right it's just it's like a it's almost like a relic Right. It's, it's based off of your experiences that these kids might not have had. Right. That's totally true. That, that, that makes me uh, wonder then, do those kids that perhaps were made fun of so much in, in TV and movies, the, the homeschooled kids that didn't have the high school experience, do they actually have happier lives than we do at the moment? Because they're used to that socially distant life and they probably already adapted ways of overcoming that loneliness or learned different techniques so that now we are all forced into this socially distant situation. We're having to learn and we already have some nostalgia that's causing us to not want to learn, right? But they already went through it. Um, And that's just going to compound, right? I bet. I totally bet. And I think that's why there's a... uh... There is a benefit to being an early adopter for, mm-hmm. for a lot of technologies. And this is one of them. And I'm not saying you should bet everything on, oh, there's going to be a pandemic so I'm going to lock myself into my house. It's like, <laughs> I think it just tells me that those humps, maybe I should decrease a little bit. Maybe I should be more aware and more receptive of the fact that 
this technology might change the rest of my life, right? The, yeah. the course of the rest of my life. Yeah, that's and those true. technologies happen. They're, they're being discovered every day. I read today that protein folding has been solved, right? Wow. The implications for that, oh my, <laughs> right? That, that question was posed in, I believe, the 60s and 70s, and it was supposed to be the most important problem that ever would be solved. Wow. November 30th, 2020. Here we are. One of, uh, funnily, I guess, coincidentally enough, one of the first applications that they're going to be focusing on is developing proteins that, uh, what's it called? C uh, I don't know what the word is. Eat, for lack of a better word, the waste. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're able to do this in a very effective way because now we can model proteins down to the 3D structure. Hot damn. That's fascinating. So you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that could completely change everything that we know about the systems in place today because now those landfills might not become an issue because they just have to be inoculated with some of these proteins and boom. Yes. That's today, fascinating. Today, I found this out, right? And this kind of stuff happens all the time. There are right. things that we, that, that we are not even aware of that are being worked on and not even just being worked on, but are almost to the point where they are like a product that are going to change yeah. the way the world works. CRISPR, for example, I believe is going to be yeah. the way. Absolutely. Right. Questions, Absolutely. Questions that we think are super pressing are going to become trivial and problems that we have not even conceived are going to come about, right? And that's going to be quite an interesting process to live through. Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's really interesting uh, because our, our baselines are just going up, right? I, I like to think about that in terms of, say, the calculator. Everyone nowadays has a TI-84, whatever, a graphical calculator that can do algebra, or not algebra, can do calculus for them, can do differential equations for them. Whereas our parents had to do that on paper by hand because calculators didn't exist, right? So our baselines are just getting that much higher, which means since we're starting at such a high point, since the, the future generations are starting with such a high level of knowledge, they can bounce off of that and go so much higher than we can. But something that concerns me is what happens if, say, the internet fails or electricity stops working and all of these baselines that are based off of the internet and electricity are no longer there, we're going to fail, perhaps fail drastically as a society because we who are used to driving everywhere in our cars, we're used to having our phones to solve our answers, might not know how to critically think and ask ourselves how to solve something without having us or having, uh, having someone tell us how to do something. Um, if we all of a sudden don't have calculators, will we be able to do calculus? Will these systems hold up? Um, or will, are, we, are we in essence um, digging a deeper hole that we could potentially fall in, right? Uh, and future, future generations might regret that we have ever did this, that we ever evolved to that point. Or do we then have to think that that's a potential future reality? So we have to um, make fail-safes, in essence, where if any of those systems ever do fail, we'll still be okay. I, I, so I think I'm very optimistic in this sense that... Yeah one of the answers is decentralization, is the democratization, right? It's let's notice that we have single points of failure and let's address that, 
right? Because exactly like you say, if you have a single point of failure and your society is predicated on that, right, it's going to be a ginormous collapse as a result of that thing going out. Yeah. And I believe that fortunately, and maybe this is not well-founded, I feel like fortunately there are people that think about this. And mm. I don't, I'm not saying I should rely on them. And I think if this is an like a interesting enough problem, then I should go work on it, right? <laughs> but uh, I do think, yeah, decentralization in that way really helps out. Like there, there's an effort, I believe, maybe it's by test uh, by Elon Musk to mm. have a uh, sort of decentralized internet. Interesting. Right? They're like gonna throw up these little, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's like through satellites or something, but you can have a more decentralized way of doing things so that you're not dependent on like one giant infrastructure. Um, Very interesting. There, there, there are other ways that like, I'm trying to think, I was listening to a podcast about uh, the impacts of a, a giant, like a giant solar flare and how that electromagnetic <laughs> radiation would completely cripple our uh, infrastructure in terms of, you know, electricity. Right. And the impacts that, that would have, but it's so far, like not probable that you know, we don't have to worry about it, but we should have places, we should have like fail safes in place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just sure. like this pandemic. Exactly. This is a pandemic is not a, a thing that is so common that we might have to worry about it, you know, in everything that we do, but it is a potential thing, a potential point of failure. So we definitely have to have fail safes in place for, for all of these systems. Uh, and there's actually a field of study um, called futurists. And these people are actually, uh, that's their role or that's their job. They, they're tasked with um, thinking about potential future scenarios of things that might happen and providing these services to say really big conglomerate corporations so that they can prepare themselves for potential catastrophes. I think, okay. I don't know if it was Shell, but some petroleum company had a futurist uh, give them these potential scenarios. And one of them was a huge oil spill in the Gulf and how that was going to do this or that. And because they had that as a potential future scenario, they were able to have at least some measures in place that made them be much more successful and uh, have an easier comeback than all the other petroleum companies. And if that's an example, just for petroleum companies, that can be used everywhere. Wow. Well, I, I, I actually, Fascinating, that was the, the field that the, there was like a formal name for the field. Yeah. Uh, he, he, this guy that was a futurist, he came and talked to us in our undergrad and it, it blew my mind because he is a person that is doing all of this. He's doing the short-term thinking. He's doing the long-term thinking. He's analyzing data. He might not have all the quality or the quantitative data that we have now. We may not have had it before, but um, he has, I mean, all these tools are there now. So making these decisions um, is becoming much easier. And uh, these decisions are also, these potential future scenarios are also much more based on all the data that would actually go into play. But there's always random factors that, that you know, th those solar flares might be a one in a billion chance, but tomorrow might be that one in a billion chance. We have no way of knowing. Right. Um, space is huge. There's meteors that we don't even see are flying around everywhere. So they might just decide to hit the, the sun and then we have a giant solar flare. Um, there's so many possible random moments that might happen everywhere and having measures for everything is impractical, but there are real things that we can do for realistic 
possibilities or, or systems or things that might happen that would really be beneficial for us to have in place. Something that is very interesting that comes to mind is if you just read enough science fiction, you probably will encounter so many of these quote unpredicted things. Yeah. Right. So maybe someone's job should be to go read all the possible science fiction that exists, do a proper cost benefit analysis, and then just <laughs> prepare. <laughs> that would be, that'd be fantastic. And you know, they'd have a lot of the work cut out for them already because some of these things that are, that were talked about in Star Trek or Star Wars, they've become real already. So yep. they have a really strong baseline off of which to pull so many other things. Hoverboards, you know, that's a thing already. And it's crazy to think about it, but that was science fiction. Cloning is science fiction, but yeah. they're realities today. CRISPR is something that not even science fiction could have really come up with, but it's a thing now, uh, or maybe they did come up with it and I just don't know, but it's, it's here now. And it's, it's an incredible thing um, that now we can move forward in societies that have these technologies. It's very interesting that you mentioned that perhaps CRISPR wasn't even thought of by science fiction. Uh, something I listened to today was talking about how technologi technological innovation that's like proper innovation, it, it usually takes a generation or two to properly implement because if, if you're talking about technological innovation in terms of like industry, there's, there, there's usually a, a, a um, a desire to take your current infrastructure and tweak it with the new tools hmm. instead of rethinking the whole thing and then right. properly leveraging those tools. Right. So, so there, there, there is that component to it. It's kind of just like on a related note, but. It, it, no, no, that's, that's true. And I think that that's part of the resistance to change. I, uh, there's this podcast uh, that talks about different things that are hidden in uh, everyday life, which is really fascinating. It's called 99% Invisible. And um, they had an episode on just talking about Detroit. If you've ever been to Detroit, Michigan, yeah. uh, you have. There, there's this weird thing. Uh, there's pipes scattered around the city just spewing steam. Um, and it seems senseless because it is at the moment. But Detroit, when these systems were being implemented, you know, 100 years ago, however long it was, Detroit was, um, was very much en route to becoming a steam-powered city. They were going to have subways that were powered by pneumatics, not by electricity, not by, you know, fossil fuels, just pressurized air. They were going to have mail systems like chutes that would deliver packages. They were going to have all of these things fed by one giant steam generator that was going to put all this pressurized air into, into tubes to be used. And it was very close from becoming a reality. A lot of the infrastructure was built. A lot of the infrastructure for the, the steam-powered subways were built. And that's why you see all those steam pipes letting off steam everywhere because it was built, but they didn't use it. So they're just letting it go. They can't really tear it down, but it was almost there. But yeah, tearing down existing systems is really hard. And I think that's part of the reason why change is going to be hard to implement. Just like changing people's ways of, of being is hard to do. When you have to tear down a building to build a new one, it's a lot more expensive than just moving somewhere else where there's a vacant plot of land and building a new building. But sometimes you have to tear down those old systems so that you can actually implement the change in a, in a real way. Otherwise people will remember those old systems and want to keep them around. You know, it, it, if I'm putting two and two together now, combining what you just said, combine, uh, and, and with, with the, the fact that I said it takes a generation or two, 
right? Yeah. It really speaks to how these experiences that we have that we somehow are nostalgic to are are our baseline. They, those might really be the things holding us back. <laughs> That's very true. Maybe we just got to let go of the past. Look to the future. Scary. But yeah. Maybe that's it. It's hard. It's, it, <laughs> it's hard. It, it's uh, if I if we think of it in terms of like the function of the brain, the function of the brain is to predict stimulus and get good at it and mm. not worry about things, basically, right? Or something, something like that. Like, okay. <laughs> I want to I want to basically look at the stimulus and be able to know what to do. And if it's okay. something I don't recognize, oh shit, things are going to be hard. I don't want to do that. Let me really quickly figure it out. So if I could somehow maintain the status quo and make sure the stimulus, the stimuli I'm getting are more or less, you know, tractable, we're good. But, but letting go of the past somehow throws that away and says, you know what, future, here we come. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna let anything and everything happen. <laughs> At yeah. least that's what it feels like. <laughs> no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And maybe that's just part of having like an empty, uh, an empty sponge. You know, children, they don't have any baseline because everything is new to them. So you can, you can teach children anything and that'll just be their normal. You can teach them that yellow is blue and blue is yellow and they will go their entire lives thinking blue is yellow and yellow is blue. But if you did that to everybody, if everyone was childlike in their mental state, we didn't have those memories, we would just very, very greedily learn the new things because that is filling this emptiness that we have and we just go from there right but there is utility in remembering the past right oh absolutely absolutely we don't make the same mistakes we don't <laughs> want to make the same mistakes again <laughs> there's so yeah geez that's such an important thing and i hate studying history but it's so important <laughs> i agree i totally agree there's uh, a lot of patience that it takes to study history Furthermore, there, there's a, just how there are futurists you were talking about. Mm -hmm. There are people who study history in a very particular way as to try to figure out if there is something that, you know, historical figures were working towards that they weren't necessarily aware of, right? Are there common threads between what people were working on and thinking about that we know now, but they did not know? And can we learn something from that? right? Is there yeah. a structured approach that we can take and say, hey, we're working on these seemingly disparate things, but maybe there's some meta thing that we're not thinking about that we should really be focusing on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally true. I'm, I'm, I have a feeling that a couple companies nowadays have, have come on to that and uh, realize the actual uh, potential that they have in succeeding uh, big chemical companies like uh, Monsanto, right? Uh, there's this really interesting potential reality. I'm not saying it's necessarily true, but it's very potential uh, where they, they modify the, the plants that farmers are growing to be chemically resistant to a particular compound, right? So now all the farmers are buying these seeds and buying these chemicals to spray on them. This uh, chemically modified plant might actually cause some sort of mutation in humans that we're not aware of because maybe they're exposed to a certain chemical of a sort, or maybe that altering their DNA will eventually um, biologically uh, compound in us, you know, uh, bioaccumulate in our bodies and cause a change that we don't know about. And that change might only be altered by a specific chemical or drug that they manufacture. So they're causing 
the potential negative benefits or positive and, uh, benefits in our lives that then they would also supply the remedies for. So they're closing this loop on a very important, very crucial thing that it is to be alive, which is food and health. And they're monopolizing it, which is a scary thought. Yeah. You know, uh, just, just like a, a, a comment on this. Monsanto was acquired by some company, I think a couple of years ago. Was it Bayer? I think something like that. And that just spooked me, right? Yeah. Because I, I know Monsanto, <laughs> Monsanto to be this like thing that I see in documentaries. But then to see that they were acquired by someone bigger yeah. made me think of like, oh, maybe I was looking at this little fish, but there's like this looming giant like shark in the background. And I just had no idea. <laughs> but yeah, I think honestly, when you, though, when you become the, uh, the supply and the demand, right? That is, that is a dangerous game in any situation very dangerous <laughs> it's very dangerous and it can lead to so much just bad things happening which is i think part of the reason why so many people are, are uh, afraid of things like communism uh because it in essence causes that in the government they are the supply they are the demand because they provide everything um so there's definitely a lot of potential bad but there's also a lot of potential good right if you have a system in place that does provide you the product and the um, they, they are supply and demand, but they do it in a way that's good. Kind of like this, uh, what we were mentioning about um, inoculating people with certain smells, right? Um, to, or for, for petrichor, for wanting to be in nature and, and inoculating people with this desire to be in nature and then wanting to support sustainability because they want nature to be around. That's in essence providing the demand or creating the demand to then have the supply. Um, but it can be a net good. It's just... The ethics of it become a little tedious. <laughs> it, it, it's it's too much of a single point of failure, in my opinion. Oh yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I think that's been one of the recurring things that we've talked about is these single points of failure. Yeah, yeah. So decentralizing it is ultimately the the best way to do it. Um, that doesn't mean that having a centralized system can't work. It's just has a really high pr- probability of failure. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. And it has. I don't know, and this is probably like a different conversation, but I don't know if it has to do with like the natural human tens- tendency to want to exploit or, or what it is when you, become, when, you, when you become a group that's pretty small with that sort of power, something mm. changes in your mental state, right? That you're just like, ooh, I can do these <laughs> things. I don't know. It, 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 the, the study of the, the propensity for humans for evil is quite interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If if humans are are innately evil, it's 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 really interesting. You're right, but I wonder because in a specific moment in time, you might have a person that that did a lot of effort, achieve a lot of success, right? And so they they came from somewhere. They have a baseline, and then they're somewhere else. Say, like Amazon, he started with a little garage full of books, and now he's like a fucking gigantic billionaire. So he has that baseline. But his kids or whoever takes over after him they're going to maybe have a baseline of just always having been rich or always having had that wealth. So they don't know, they don't have that, that perspective. And that might make them a little bit, um, have a higher potential of, of actually uh, becoming corrupt or, or doing, uh, making wrong decisions because they don't, they don't care as much. Um, they don't have that, that hard work that went into it of making this, this one thing good. They just know that they have all of this and it's potentially going to waste. Um, and I think that's, that's something that happens. You can have a group of people 
that have really solid intentions or really um, make decisions for a particular cause, but then the generations that come after that, they, they're normalized to a certain, a, a new standard, right? And that new standard might benefit that cause or it might hurt that cause, but, but it's hard to know how it will. Um, and so over time, you have the degradation of these systems that might've actually been successful or unsuccessful in a certain way, um, just because of how people are raised or the experiences that they have and they can pull from. I think that this is a very profound point, right? It has to do with abstraction. Mm. You, can, you can't, I don't know that you can truly believe in an idea unless you face the consequences of its, of its uh, implementation, something to this effect, right? It's like, yeah. I can know poverty is bad conceptually, but until I've lived it, can I really know how bad it is? Yeah, yeah. And that's... This, this is like the first gen immigrant problem, right? My parents, <laughs> they came here and they've seen and lived in poverty. Yeah. But then me, I was born there, but I was brought here, you know, when I was young enough to, to only know what's, what's good here. Yeah. And now my outlook on it is fundamentally different from theirs. And I don't know that I can truly capture what they've lived. And yeah. then because of that, my actions are very different, right? Like people who live through the depression, they'll, they'll act and behave very differently even after it's done because they don't yeah. want to ever go back. Yeah. So for Bezos, maybe his kids are born to born as billionaires and they can conceptualize what it means for people to be normal, but can you ever really be normal? <laughs> right. Can you ever really teach someone that's a billionaire what it's like to not be able to afford going somewhere and eating somewhere, like doing whatever you want, buying, a, not buying a jet whenever you want a jet, you know? Uh, that's, a, that's a really hard thing to teach. And I, I think it's crucial for how, um, how a society or how successful something can be. Um, those, there's first-gen immigrants that maybe made this country, right? They were hardworking and they left countries that were impoverished and full of war. So when they came here, they wanted to work really hard and they did. They built, you know, this society that we have in and we're the, the generations afterwards. So, or they are, some of the people are generations afterwards. So they don't have that, that feeling. They don't have that baseline to pull from. My parents are the same way. Uh, they immigrated here from a place that was really, really impoverished and going to shit. So they worked really hard and they built a, a name for themselves, but I don't have that feel. I'm constantly fighting them to, to work less so they can live more, but that's a really hard thing to change. Yeah. And furthermore, <laughs> now that I'm thinking and reflecting on this conversation, I don't even know if I'm in the position to tell them to change. Yeah. Right. Because what's, what, what, I, yeah, I don't think I'm in the position to tell them to change. If they want to work and they want to work because that's what makes them feel like what they're doing is important, power to them. Right, right. But then it's, it's that moment of, it's like almost looking at a child and they, they've never eaten a certain food that you know they might really enjoy, might bring them so much joy, but because they're just used to only eating a certain thing, they're never going to try the other thing. And um, they, they're, it's that joy that they're potentially missing out on, Right. Uh, it's why instead of working seven days a week, why don't you take a, a weekend and go someplace that you've never seen? And that joy that they, um, they've never experienced, they don't know that they're missing because they've never experienced it. So it's just like, hey, go experience this so you can know what you're missing out on so you can want to change. <laughs> uh, hey, that's a long process. I yeah. Think. <laughs> because that, that, that mus muscle that, that 
is of joy, right? It can atrophy to the point where it almost doesn't exist. Right? Yeah. I know, I know because my parents are this way that when they, even they do have a day off, it's, it's not a day off, right? Yeah. They can't, they can't turn it off. Yeah. yeah. And likewise, it's hard. I try, I try but then I, I think more and more or less recently, not really recently, but a little bit while back, I came to the conclusion that, you know, who, who am I to intervene? Who am I to intervene in what you're doing? It's okay. True. True. It's their lives. They, they can choose to live with it or ha- live it however they want. They're, they're fully grown adults. They're conscious people. They can make decisions. Right. And, and I think it's actually growing up this way with all these different sort of cultural norms, all these sort of society, these different societal norms. Mm-hmm. And kind of having said no to some of them and yes to some of them, that leads me to be very, very cautious in proceeding, right? I, I have yeah. to really think about why it is I'm doing the things I'm doing and what forces are at play. This is more or less what I texted you about. I was being really vague about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, let me, as best I can, figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay. Because I don't want to be doing things for what I deem to be not good enough reasons. Okay. And one of the big reasons that I think I used to do things is because that's the thing that is business as usual. That's what the thing that you should do. I see. It used to be a compelling enough reason, but it's not not anymore right but then the problem is when when most of those forces go away then there's the internal force left mm-hmm. and it's not pointing anywhere <laughs> right there's there's a problem of paralysis <laughs> well man I, I i think the the overcoming the paralysis part would have to be a personal thing right it's yeah. it's you versus you i feel like uh, that's that's the whole issue um but I, I think that's great that you're that you're thinking about that it's, and wanting to to do things for conscious decisions because I think that's key for for all of humanity to succeed. It's it's thinking and acting consciously, thinking before you act, um, yeah. and thinking about what your actions are because you should be able to support everything that you do. Every every decision that you make should have a logical reasoning as to why you're doing it and why you're not doing some other potential thing that could be more or less beneficial to you. Um, is it just the blind following the blind, uh, leading us to the eventual pits of, of human extinction? Or do we stop following the blind and we start asking ourselves why and changing our actions, changing our decisions to be more conscious of what the reality around us is? I agree. And it's, it's uh, I think to, to come back, it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's hard for a lot of reasons. First off, because it's a quite a bit of effort to actually put thought into it, but it's also yeah. difficult because everything around you might might be telling you otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Everyone's telling you, don't do this, don't do that. Yeah. But I don't think that's... it's even as, uh, as uh, visual as everybody telling you not to. It's just like the the sort of, perceived consequences being what they are Mm. right i think it's a very easy extrapolation to make that's might be well founded (laughs) i'm still speaking very abstractly here but (laughs) more more or less it's just like yeah don't 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 follow things blindly be intentional as intentional as you can be 
Exactly. With everything that you can change and uh, the, the power that you have to make a change, do it if you can, right? Because yeah. that means that you're, that you're living lives uh, or life that's that much more yours. You're not just building, uh, living someone else's life because they told you that's how you should live it. Yes. Um, and I think for, for that reason alone, it's, it's, uh, it's a good reason, right? It's you making decisions for your life based on what you know, uh, not because someone else told you to do something. So you're living a more unique life. You're living a better life that's meant for you. And so that's great. That's a great yeah. thing to do. It's not one size fits all. It's not one size fits all. <laughs> Closing the loops. <laughs> I'm impressed. Well done. Well done. <laughs> so many things tied into each other. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. I think it's very useful. I think right. the, one of the most important things is to take principles that you learn in one, one realm mm-hmm. and tie them into problems that you're having in another yeah, yeah absolutely. there's a lot of utility there huge huge amounts of utility that that goes right back into it right you're you're learning from everything around you to make decisions about other things um, everything's connected yeah. there's points connecting everything that you do in your life to everything else in the world and knowing that those points are connected is just that much better for you to then make better decisions in the future right it's great man it's great hey. <laughs> it's been it's been real I think it's been real. We've we've been on here for a long time. (laughs) 